I'm Steve Young. You're watching the Letterman Podcast. Welcome once again to the Letterman Podcast. My name is Mike Chisholm. Uh, I love today's episode. I love all, Mike, you say you love all your episodes. I do. This is a lot of fun. And I, I just enjoy them. They're like, uh, they're like little children, 113 little children running around. Uh, th this is a cool one because, you know, we've talked about, and if you've read any of the books about David Letterman early on in his, um, in his uh, career after he left Indiana, talking about uh, his stints with game shows. And, and, and we've got a guy on this episode here. Um, his name is Adam Nedef. And, and Adam is, he is a historian when it comes to the genre of game shows. And I mean, you're going to listen to him and go, holy smokes, this is a guy, world-class mind when it comes to uh, the inner workings of the history of all of the, the, the little catacombs um, that are nestled within the entire body of what game shows are, uh, are now, were back in the day, how they've gotten to where they are, the stories, the anecdotes within them. And, and this is a guy who is just, he's a world-class mind when it comes to this stuff. He's also a guy who, if, if for those of you who remember uh, the very last late show with David Letterman ends with a very famous montage. We've talked about it a lot in this show. There was a guy who the day after that montage came out, who actually took the montage, pulled the whole thing apart and wrote comments about many of the different pictures, the 540 some odd pictures in that, in that, uh, that, that final montage. Adam's the guy that did that. And he talks about the, the history of how that happened. We didn't go through the montage in this episode. That is another episode that's going to be coming up. He's going to be coming back on the show. And we're going to spend an entire episode going through the montage uh, that was that was so carefully assembled with love by Barbara Gaines, Randy Grossick, uh, and, and, and others, the people who, who created that amazing, amazing montage, the sum up of the body of work of David Letterman and company up to that point in 2015. Adam's the guy that pulled that all apart. But this episode here, I wanted to talk about game shows because the, the idea of, of, of uh, talk shows and game shows actually do have a, quite a few cross-references, uh, especially in the modern age. I mean, my goodness, how many talk show hosts currently have been part of game shows in, the, in their past? Uh, you know, you look at Fallon, he's doing it right now. You look at a guy like Craig Ferguson, who's gone and hosted a game show since his, his uh, talk show left. Jimmy Kimmel came from the game, game show world you know, win Ben Stein's money. And there are many other examples of that. Uh, Adam and I certainly get into many of those in this episode. And of course, he talks a lot about David Letterman's time with game shows uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, actually, I think it is just late 70s now that I think about it. We talk about Merv Griffin, of course. Merv Griffin, responsible for two of the most successful game shows of all time, Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune, but also was a mainstay for local comics. So he had his panel show that local comics could go on every day. Lots of different little uh, cross-references. It's a long, fun episode. It's a hangout episode uh, just with a friend of the show. I've wanted to have Adam on since the very, very beginning of this. And uh, finally, he and I could make our schedules uh, to a place where, where uh, he could come on the show. Now, if you want to find Adam on social media, Facebook is the best spot. I highly recommend following him. He puts up funny stuff. He puts up good stuff. Um, so it's Adam Needeff, N-E-D-E-F-F, -F, okay? Um, and then also, uh, if you want to get any of his books, he's uh, the latest book that he wrote is just on the Gong Show. It's just come out. Um, and it's uh, go to bear, B-E-A-R-M-A-N-O-R media.com, bearmannermedia.com. And you can find Adam's books there. 
And uh, he he does talks about that a little bit in the show. But like I wanted to start the show by saying, hey, head on over there, check out Adam's books, and um, just we hope you enjoy this fun episode of the Letterman Podcast uh, with our ho- with our very very special guest Adam Needham. Adam, I am so happy that you are here uh, coming on the Letterman podcast. There's a whole bunch of directions that we can go and will go with this episode and maybe even ones uh, in the future. Um, it is so cool that we can talk about uh, the history of the game show. And and, and David Letterman ab- absolutely has connections to that earlier on. And so do many other comics and, 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 and celebrities. Uh, the game show has such a unique place in entertainment history you might be the king of the heap when it comes to knowledge about this stuff. <laughs> Plus, we've got the montage thing. I've talked about the montage, uh, the final Letterman montage that uh, I can't wait. I hope so badly to have Barbara Gaines and maybe Randy Grossick on and some other people. Um, the day that that montage or the day after that montage came out, you uh, painstakingly uh, <laughs> you took it apart and and deconstructed the montage. And we can maybe go into that as well. But either way, uh, you and I have been circling each other for a long time. We've both been admirers of each other's uh, work on 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 social media for a long time. Adam, thank you for taking time out of your insane schedule to be on the Letterman podcast today. Well, thank you very much. I'm very, very excited to be a part of this. And I, I remember at the very beginning of the podcast, you asked if I could be on. And I said, oh, sure, sure, sure. And then you began building this guest list. And I began seeing the people that you had on the show. And I suddenly realized, oh, this guy doesn't need me anymore. Um, <laughs> so... After everybody from the actual show who actually has something to say about working on the show and being on the show, I, I'm glad that you were able to circle back around to me eventually. <laughs> you know what? It's so funny how that that's kind of what happened. Like I had a whole bunch of folks because, I mean, uh, you know, we've said this before on the show, but, uh, you know, there's three types of guests that we have on the show. Obviously, people who worked uh, uh, for some somehow some way for the company of David Letterman and company. That's, that's one. Uh, number two, somebody who's been on the show was featured on the show, that kind of a thing. And then number three, which is equally as important by the way, are our folks in the community uh, in the Letterman enthusiast community. And, and that's all been important. I thought the first six months to a year of this show was going to be pretty much straight up community members. And, yeah. and it was going to, uh, you know, every once in a while we'd get a Steve O'Donnell or a Tom Reeson or someone like that to come on. I, then it just the torrent of 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 um, you know staff that came on. I, I'm surprised and delighted by it, but no, there is a, a whole bunch of folks that I have wanted to have on the show. I talk about that montage so much. It's one of the greatest moments in um, you know when you talk about a crown jewel, a way to end something. That montage to end the late show and late night run was worthy of the content. It was absolutely incredible. Um, when the montage hit, at what point did you make the decision that you were going to deconstruct the whole thing? You know, here's the funny thing. This wasn't a grand plan I had. This was a favor to one friend of mine. Um, I have a very good friend uh, back in West Virginia. His name is uh, Ernie Anderson, and uh, he is a disc jockey on Cool Hits uh, Radio in Ashland, Kentucky. So if you're in the Ashland area, they also have a Twitch channel, and they simulcast the feed there, so you can uh, listen to and watch Ernie's radio show on uh, uh, on Twitch. Um, but Ernie is also a Letterman fan. And the day after it aired, he said, you know, it'd be really cool to be able to go frame by frame and see all the pictures that they had. And I said, I'm going to do this for Ernie. So this was – it was sincerely just a nice thing that I was going to do for a friend. 
And so I posted all the screenshots and I posted what I knew for the screenshots that I knew about. And it's kind of funny how I was given, I was given way more credit for what I did than what I actually did, because I, I think like what Rolling Stone and what all the press said the next day was this hero letterman fan has posted and contextualized every frame of it i didn't contextualize every frame there were sports people and bands that i didn't recognize in the montage so i was like i'll i'll come back to those later i'll I'll go ahead (laughs) but i went ahead and i i took 540 screenshots of that montage Mm -hmm. i uploaded them onto facebook and for the ones where i knew for sure what the context was i went ahead and put a thing about the context and it was just a favor for a friend for ernie and then I had the next day off of work, so I slept in uh, that next morning. And so I woke up late, and I look at my phone, and I just – I have my – I've got dozens of text messages, and I've got all kinds of Facebook alerts and messages. Like, what, what's happening? And it's very strange to wake up and find out that a thing that you posted on Facebook at 11 p.m. the night before – has just been turned into an article on Rolling Stone's website. And uh, Adam, while you were sleeping, the press blew up and you're getting all kinds of attention right now. Um, So like I said, it it wasn't this favor that I was doing to the fans or anything that I wanted to do to salute Letterman or anything. It was seriously just a nice thing that I wanted to do for one friend. And and people went kind of crazy for it. Um, And it's part of this track record that I've developed over the past few years where every couple of years I accidentally get 15 minutes of fame for a while. Um, I've never... No, just to go over this very, very quickly, yeah, I yeah, was yeah. I was in a segment on Conan uh, right after he arrived on TBS because I was yep. working at Madame Tussauds at the time, and I was Conan's tour guide for his visit to Madame Tussauds, and I got 15 minutes of fame from that. There were people coming to the Wax Museum for months after that just to take a photo with me, um, so I had that for a while, and then this thing happens with David Letterman and posting the montage, and I got 15 yep. minutes of fame from that, and then a few months later the first image came out of the new marquee that they were building for Stephen Colbert now that he's moving into the theater. And I made a comment about it on Reddit and Stephen Colbert apparently opened up an account on Reddit for the sole purpose of responding to the comment that I made. And then that blew up in the news for a while. And then a couple of years after that, Betty White passes away and people find out, Hey, this guy wrote a book about Betty White's husband. And I went viral for that and sold a bunch of books. So yeah, I I've never been consistently famous in my life, but every couple of years I do something by accident that gets me recognition for about a week. That um, is so fun. <laughs> like that is so fun. Um, yeah. I, I want to, I want to talk about Madame Tussauds for a second there because sure. I mean you talk about museums and, and and what you do now I want to get into that yeah. here. How long were you at Madame Tussauds? And is this I was the there. One? This is the Hollywood Boulevard. This Madame is the Tussauds? this is the one yeah. on Hollywood Boulevard. I was there from its opening day, the one on Hollywood Boulevard that opened up in two thousand eight, and I was there for uh, eight years, and then I got a job offer to work on a game show. Uh, so I gave my notice, and it, it's been very very nice. Uh, game shows are kind of a gig based thing. And I got this job offer to work on a game show for 11 weeks. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go away for 11 weeks and then I'll come back to Madame Tussauds or whatever. And it's just, the jobs have kept coming. So I haven't gone back. I, it was, I love the people that I worked with. It was a great job, but uh, I came out here to work on game shows and I've been lucky enough to be able to do that for almost eight years now. So I've been working in game shows for as long as I was at Madame Tussauds now. <laughs> and I want to get into the resume as to, as, as to what you are, because before before we hit record here, uh, you know, you kind of went through the resume and to me, it's very, very impressive. Um, but, but at the end of the day, the historian, the historian in you, the game show enthusiast in you, um, you know, you were happy having fun at Madame Tussauds, that kind of a thing. 
safe to say that the love for game shows was there before and when you moved to this gig it was a giant step up or yeah has the love uh, for game shows shown up since then this was the entire reason that i moved out to california i was obsessed with game shows from the time that i was a baby uh the game show phantom was just always there um and so after i finished college about two years after i finished college i moved out to los angeles for the purpose of working in game shows and Breaking into the business isn't the easiest thing in the world. I I had a couple of early shots. I was a page at CBS uh, for about six months, and I also worked in the prize department for Wheel of Fortune, and that lasted about six months. But breaking in and staying in the game show business is a very difficult thing because it's very insulated. Um, a friend of mine uses the term incestuous. I, yeah. I don't want to use that word for it, but it really it's a circle of people who know each other, and people didn't know me. And so uh, after I got my 15 minutes of fame on Conan, I decided, okay, I, I can take advantage of that. Um, I always had the idea in my head that I wanted to write a book about game shows, but okay, now I have the opening that I can kind of borrow off this fame that I got for this little segment on Conan. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I reached out to a publisher and I said, I have this idea for a book about game shows. And I laid out what the idea was. And um, I kind of plugged myself as, hey, I got a lot of attention from being on Conan. So you know, I'm barely famous. Go ahead and uh, give me a book contract. And it worked. Um, oh so, God. <laughs> so that should I got, not have worked, dude. Well, I, I, I will say one of the things, uh, that happened probably more important, uh, than the Conan connection, although that's, that didn't hurt. Um, I happened to find a publisher. Uh, I became aware of a publisher who published the kind of books that I wanted to write. It's a company called Bear Manor Media, yep. and they are a small publisher, but their whole thing is just chronicling the history of show business in all its forms. So well, that's cool. they were exactly the publisher to reach out for. The example that I give everybody is when I first got my book, when I got my first book published, Yep. the other book that they had come out that month was a biography of Jay Silverheels, Tonto from The Lone Ranger. And it's just... Wow. Who, so what they publishing go company? Yeah, what publishing company in 2013 was going to publish a book about Jay Silverheels? But they did, and that's that's what they specialize in. Their whole thing is the history of show business. Um, so I started writing books. The first was General History of Game Shows called This Day in Game Show History, which was yep. a four-volume set. And uh, my elevator pitch for it at the time was, if you're familiar with Uncle John's Bathroom Reader, I wanted to write Uncle John's Bathroom Reader for game show fans. It's a collection of short essays about the history of game shows. And then from there, I began writing biographies of the hosts. Uh, I wrote a biography of uh, Bill Cullen, yep. who is somebody we can revisit if we're going to be talking about David Letterman's career. Uh, yep. Gene Rayburn, the host of the Match Game. Uh, Alan Ludden, who I feel like we're going to be talking about a lot by the time we're done here. Yep. Uh, Marty Hall, Dennis James, who was basically the first game show host. Dennis James was the host of the first network game show when network broadcasting became a thing in 1946. Yeah. And also relevant to your interest because uh, I know you've mentioned a few times being a wrestling fan and Dennis James was the first pro wrestling play-by-play -play guy on television. Wow. Um, and uh, game shows FAQ, which was another general history of the game show genre. And I always say that's kind of my entry level course. That's your 101 class in game show history. If you're looking to buy one book about game shows. Yeah. Um, and not only did that lead to me working full-time in game shows because mission accomplished what ended up happening was my name did become known and my books were obtained by the people who work in the game show business and do the hiring and so there i got go. a job offer from somebody who was familiar with me and uh gave me that chance on a show called idiot test aaron solomon is his name and bless him for it um and that's uh how i broke in and that's how i managed to stay in 
So I've been doing this work for the past eight years, uh, working full-time in game shows. And for the longest time, I overthought how to explain what I do in game shows. And then I found out my roommate talked about me at a social gathering, and I said, so what did you tell people about me? And it turns out my roommate had an amazingly simplified way of describing what it was I do, and I, I realized, you know... I really did put too much thought into trying to explain what I did. I, I, my roommate said, here's how I explain who you are uh, when I meet folks at parties. She says, have you ever watched a game show where a contestant gives kind of an iffy answer to the question and the host turns around and says, I need a ruling from our judges on that. She says, that's my roommate. My roommate is judges. So <laughs> yeah, after all Perfect this time, agonizing, well, I research, I research the questions and I verify and I look for issues with other, uh, with also accepts and blah, blah, blah. And it turns out, no, 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 that's my job. I'm judges. I'm that guy at the game show taping. So wow. that's my job. Uh, <laughs> um, now, now, like, I mean, okay, so you're sitting there. Okay, let's, let's, let's do an example of a game show that you have done this recently. Let's just throw one out there really to, to throw out what the judging Okay, yeah. Uh, So uh, Masterminds was a show that I've done for a long time for Game Show Network. Uh, We've done uh, six seasons of that, I think, total. Mm -hmm. And just an example of what my job is, um, a question that comes to mind, and I can can say this because we used the question. It it would be a problem if I described a question that hasn't been played yet, but we used this one. And what the writer originally wrote was, and I'm doing this from memory, so I apologize. I may even screw up the question as I'm doing this from memory. But the writer wrote the question, uh, what type of auto racing is named for the list of rules that the drivers must adhere to? And the answer was Formula One racing. Now, I don't know much about sports, but what I dug into and what I found out was there's not just Formula One racing, there's Formula Two racing, Formula Three racing, Formula. And it's all the same idea. They're all named for the list of rules. I would have assumed if I had never read this trivia question and not being a sports guy, I always figured Formula One referred to like whatever, whatever gasoline they're using in the the car or something (laughs) like that. Yeah. yeah. But no, Formula refers to the list of rules. So I looked into this and I realized, oh, wow, Formula there are lots of different formulas that they that this could be referring to. So we sent it back and we said, okay, there's a problem. There's a lot of different formulas. So there are a bunch of different answers that a contestant could give to this. And on some shows, that's okay. But there's also this level of thinking that you don't want a question to have another correct answer because that's a courtesy to your audience. One of the things that people watch game right. shows for is to get that fix from, I knew the correct answer. I know yeah. the correct answer. A little dopamine and, hit that. Go, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, so like, for example, if you were asking the trivia question, what president was born in Virginia, you know, the contestant, the viewer at home is saying Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson is the answer, Thomas Jefferson. Right. And the viewer uh, is seeing the contestant say, the answer is George Washington. Host says, correct. And the viewer at home is thinking, well, yeah, but Thomas Jefferson was correct, too. I would have been correct, too. You want to lock that question down enough so that the the thing that the viewer at home is shouting at their TV is the answer that they'll hear on the screen. Because, like you said, dopamine hit. That's so that's the okay. reason you want to lock down what the question is for that reason. Um, so are so you we sitting there? To... So I want to know the, 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 the so on Mastermind, are you yeah. sitting there kind of like, uh, you know, a producer would on Letterman or something like that with a clipboard and you're just sitting there and you're you're going through all the questions uh, as they have, as you go through them, and then and we then do, you're an assistant, uh, basically, if necessary. And basically, the, the the way the television production and game show production, especially, has changed over the years because it, 
Jeopardy still works this way, for example, but it used to be game shows had a day in the studio every week, and then the rest of the week was office days. The way a lot of game shows work now, and the way that uh, our game shows work uh, when you're doing a show for Game Show Network is you do eight weeks of question preparation, and you're just building and building and building piles of material. We call each game a stack. You're building stacks of games. If you're doing 65 episodes, you build 66 stacks, 66 to 70. Um, And uh, there's a reason that you have extras, which I'll explain in a little bit. Um, But then what you have on the taping day is you decide what five games you're going to play that day. And as I'm watching the taping, I'm watching the game and I've got this list of all the questions we're going to play and the order we're going to play them. And I have a list of correct answers. I have a list of also accepts, which are the things that they could say instead. Like for example, if the correct answer is like a chemical compound, we'll say not just the common name of that chemical compound, but we'll have the, like the NACL3 or whatever. So NACL for table table salt or table salt. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I gotcha. Yeah. Uh, So we'll have also accepts like that. And we'll also have what we call DNAs, which are do not accept. So things that we thought of that we looked into and it turns out, yes, this is definitely wrong if a contestant says that. And it's answers that we try to anticipate that they're going to give. Um, And as much as you try to, every now and then a contestant will say something that just gives everybody pause. And it's the it's the sweatiest experience if you're a game show fact checker like I am, because what happens is everybody kind of turns to you and says, what are we going to do with that, Adam? (laughs) <laughs> We're going to stop tape for a minute and a half. Hold on. And wow. so, I mean, you just, <laughs> you just, you very, very quickly Google around and you look for some kind of information and you just, this is one of the things that you have to be careful for. Googling around sounds like you're not really giving a lot of careful, but that's the next thing that you have to do is you Google around and you consider the source of the results yeah. that Google is bringing up for you. And you try yeah. to figure out, okay, can we use that? Can we use that? And we also have a few books that we draw from and we have a few specific sources of information that we get things from. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's the job there. Now to finish the point that I was making earlier yes, about uh, yes, Formula sir. One. So in the case of that specific question, okay, yes. uh, what style of auto racing is named for the list of rules that they have to comp- adhere to? And we find out there's a slew of also accepts. Yep. So what we did was we rewrote the question to, with such races as the Monaco Grand Prix, what style of auto racing is known for? Because now, okay, you have this one fact that applies to all kinds of auto racing. Right. But Monaco Grand Prix is one specific thing that's formula one and it's not anything else so formula two formula three all those suddenly become wrong because we've specified a race in there so that's the idea um you do learn a lot of things from the job uh just from writing all these questions and researching them and fact checking them uh one of the things that we discovered uh one of the first questions i ever had to research was what sport uses a shuttlecock a piece of equipment called a shuttlecock um and cricket right what is cricket uh badminton Oh, it's um, badminton. Yeah. God damn it. All right. And yeah. <laughs> 99% of contestants who hear that question would say, oh, that's badminton. What we found out in question research, what I specifically found out, because I was the one assigned to research it, was the list of sports that use something called a shuttlecock is shockingly long. I think I ended up coming up with like 12 or 13 different answers to this question. Holy smokes. So we ended up having to do a major rewrite to it. Um, and I but, bet you cricket wasn't one of them either. Yeah, no. Um <laughs> So that's my job, and it actually... Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and so that actually is the nature of it, is you just spend eight straight weeks going through trivia question after trivia question after trivia question, trying to pick them apart, looking for nitpicks that the contestants can make, 
looking for any kinds of issues that may come up and making sure that everyone is just tightly secured and tightly written so that it can only be one possible correct answer. And then once we're in the studio, I'm the guy sitting at the other edge of the stage to make the really tough decisions if a contestant gives an answer that's not exactly what we had in mind. Unbelievable. Um, you bring up so many other questions. And we will get to Letterman, everybody. But, hey, <laughs> I'm fascinated by this. It's a rabbit hole I want to go down. Um, and, 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 uh, and it's our show, so we're going to do whatever we want. Um, okay. So talk about the culture of questions for each game show. Like, I mean, and I mean, it's, it's like how English has so many different dialects in the different places around the world that speak English, uh, that, that, that are English speaking countries that you go to the variations. Um, there must be a culture for the different types of questions, depending on the show, and, and, and I mean, it feels like you're a guy that could really go deep on that subject as well. Is that, uh, am I you accurate you on think that? that? Um, no, there, there is, there are styles of question writing. There are different types of shows that want different types of approaches. You have shows like, uh, the chase and shows like jeopardy, which are heavy academia with a dose of pop culture. Uh, yeah. or for example, there's another show that I'm, I can, there's another show that I've worked on that I can't really give the title of yet, but oh. it was pretty much the opposite where it was heavy on pop culture with just a little bit of academia. Right. Um, right. And it just depends on what the producers want the show to be, what we want the identity of the show to be, what the, what kind of the purpose and the selling point of the show is. Um, and there are lots of different approaches and philosophies about why certain shows should have a certain type of question. Um, like uh, for example, one one theory that I've heard, and this is true of a lot of shows, is if it's a show like Jeopardy, where the idea is that it's just straight trivia, you yep. can get away with having hard questions for that. But if it's a show where the correct answer allows you the chance to do a thing, like if you give a correct answer, you get a choice of one of the playing cards or something like right. that. Right. If it's a show like that, you want the material to skew easy because if it's a show where the question allows you the chance to do something – and you go for a minute to a minute and a half and that thing hasn't happened, mm -hmm. it becomes kind of tough to watch. Um, right. You're watching for that action and the question is how you get to that action. So like a show like High Rollers where correct answer gives you a chance to roll the dice and try to knock the numbers off the board. You want those questions to be easy because you want those dice to be rolling. You want to see the contestants having to make those decisions with the numbers. Um, so a show like that, you want to skew easy material. If you're all about the trivia and the challenge and, and just look at how smart these people are, go nuts with your trivia material. Go nuts right. with finding all kinds of stuff and uh, trying to challenge and trying to get new information to people. Um, one of the fun things about the job is every now and then you, you really do stumble upon things that you didn't know before. And you, uh, it, it, my job is not to write the questions. My job is to fact check what other people have written, but there have been a few times where I've kind of flagged the head writer on questions and said, Hey, I just found something really interesting that I've never heard on a trivia show before. And I think this would make a great question. And I'll give you an example of this. Yeah. Um, somebody had written a question about the Wright brothers. And in researching the Wright brothers, I came across this biography and I found out the Wright brothers years before they built their first airplane, published a newspaper for the black community in Dayton, Ohio. Um, it was either Wilbur or Orville had a black friend who was a writer and an aspiring writer. And 
he was kind of lamenting to one of the Wright brothers that there's really no forum for black writers to get published because it's the late 1800s in America. And so Wilbur and Orville basically just set up a printing press and said, okay, we're going to start a newspaper for the black community in Dayton. And we're going to call it the Tattler and you're going to be one of the writing staff. You're, we're going to go ahead and so Wilbur and Orville. (laughs) Yeah. Wilbur and Orville published a newspaper for the black community in Dayton, Ohio, and then went on to, get the first airplane off the Great ground flight. Yeah. Yeah. So I flagged down my, and I said, did you know this about the Wright brothers? And he saw the fact that I was looking at it and he said, no, I didn't know that. And he said, so we made it the $10,000 bonus question for a taping of masterminds because he was so delighted by the fun fact. He's like, we have to use that on a show. Oh, that's fantastic. So, yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Okay. So, and, and then I, I'm curious as to the, um, you know why you ladybugs think- are called ladybugs? No. Why there, there was uh, an infestation of a, um, basically a predatory group of insects uh, on uh, farms in, I believe, Mexico. I want to say uh, Mexico. Uh, it was a Spanish-speaking country, and that's relevant to a thing. Um, but uh, they began saying a prayer to the Virgin Mary uh, to send something that would get rid of all these insects that were eating the crops. And a swarm of red and black beetles begin showing up and eating all of these insects while not touching the plants that were being destroyed in the crop. And because the Virgin Mary was depicted in red and black artwork in this, in red and black, uh, in the artwork in this part of the world, uh, the farmers began referring to these as the beetles of our lady, which turned into ladybug. So there's another thing that I learned from fact checking a question about ladybugs. It was completely unrelated from what we were asking about ladybugs. And I was like, that's amazing. So so you're you're okay, i always so, have but, something to tell people at parties now oh, oh, oh you you're just you took the words right out of my mouth adam like yeah it's like okay so we've got um you know the 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 inside almost arcane if not so fascinating knowledge that you have about game shows but a part of that also has to be the arcane if if it would be arcane if not fascinating little facts about yeah. everything in life and you have this mind that just keeps them all. Yeah. Um, I gotta say, I tip my cap to you, sir. I mean, Thank I, you. I can, I can certainly relate. Um, not nearly as broadly as you, but like, I mean, I gotta, like, you know, when I, when I get some of the some of the Letterman folks saying to me, "Hey, I can't believe you remember that," or "Did you? How did you know that?" or like, that is a good little feeling right there to a very small slice of of, of, very, of specific and, and I mean, pop culture. Yours that's is the like, tricky thing. I, I appreciate the praise, but what I always point out to people is the mind that I have is equipped only for the work that I'm doing and nothing else. <laughs> like, if I apply for an executive position at Starbucks, <laughs> what do I say in that interview? So, Mr. Needif, what exactly can you bring to the table if you're vice president of marketing for Starbucks? Well, you see, farmers said a prayer, and then the ladybugs showed up, and that's why they're called ladybugs. Have you ever done stand-up, Adam? <laughs> I bet you'd be great at it. <laughs> I did. St- I did stand up three times. And uh, why did I do stand-up? Why would you? Why do you do it for any reason? I was trying to impress a woman that I liked. Sure, of course. Yep. <laughs> yep. And I, I will say, I didn't bomb. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it it went well the three times I did stand-up. But also, I I didn't realize, and this was kind of a lesson that I learned from being around her while she was trying to do it was, uh people don't realize what a grind it is when you're first starting out in stand-up yep. um, because they kind of, ex- the clubs kind of expect you to bring the audience 
yes. which is a yeah, weird absolutely. bit of pressure. Yeah, and it, yep. yeah, there's just there's a lot to break in there, and I was I just very early on I decided okay it would be cool to make a career out of this, but I do not have the patience for this. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, I get yeah. you. I get you. Yeah. Um, you pick out four ladybug facts and you got four bits there that you could do four <laughs> stories that you just pepper little things in. That's endlessly fascinating. Um, I got to ask a question. So, so now we've got game shows that are like, um, you know, game centric and you got game shows that are, like you said, trivia kind of centric, that sort of thing over the history of, uh, of, of the game show genre. I would think that more heavily weighted on the trivia side of things than the actual games. Correct. I would say it's the opposite. Um, no. I think what happened there is as a result of, and you probably know the story, the quiz show scandals of yeah. the 1950s. Yes, sir. And you saw a hard Q&A go away for quite a while. And that gave birth to shows like Password and shows yes. like Video Village, where the contestants were nav navigating a giant game board on the stage. Um, shows like that, where it was mostly game with some knowledge element to it. Um, and people like that. And also I think, I think Jeopardy casts such a giant shadow that I yeah. feel like I suspect there are people in the TV business to some extent who look at Jeopardy and say, that's our hard trivia show. Right. We don't need another one. We're right. good. We, that, that's, we have Jeopardy. Let's do something else with our show. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's rare to see that in a field where let's face it, television is an area where success breeds imitation. But oh, I, yeah. I really do. I really do feel like Jeopardy has this reputation of sorts where people look at it and say, that's the hard quiz show. We're going to do something else when we develop our game show. Yeah. Yeah. Looking at um, Ellen and Fallon um, and what they've done in the last, I mean, call it whatever, 10, 15 years or, or, or whatnot. Um, I guess for you, you see something like that and you're like, oh, my, my genre that I love so much is alive and well. Uh, would you say that the that the genre is, you know, it's got their own network, as you, you, as know, you mentioned? It, 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 they've got uh, not just their own network, but I mean, we've, we're in this era now with fast channels and we have 24-hour channels dedicated to reruns of specific shows. We have a 24-hour Wheel of Fortune channel and a 24-hour Jeopardy channel and a 24-hour Price is Right, Let's Make a Deal. Family oh. Feud has its own 24-hour channel. So you have all of those plus the general Game Show Network and Buzzer. Uh, and you're seeing primetime television depending on game shows in a way that they never had before. And we have more primetime games than ever um, as everyone is trying to navigate whatever it is that television is turning into in the next decade. And we, we know, we don't know what it is, but we know that the next 10 years are going to be a hell of a time for the TV business. We're trying yes. to figure out what it's going to be, but as they're trying to gain those bear, get their bearings about that, you're seeing the networks kind of turn to game shows as something to put on the air in prime time. Mm -hmm. um, and in many cases doing not just well, but, unusually well surprisingly well compared to what else is offered on primetime television at this point um so the genre still exists the genre survives the genre thrives mm -hmm. uh and there's a bright future for it i hope and you've just kind of touched on something interesting uh, about the genre in the last few years you're seeing jimmy fallon doing game show segments on the tonight show yep. which is well you can't do a talk show that's uh, that's got game show elements or ellen doing the same thing and meanwhile, uh, down in Chile, you've got Sabado Gigante, which did that for 53 years before suddenly American television looked at it and realized, wait, wait, wait you can do a show that's both? And <laughs> so now, honestly, yeah, it's you're seeing Jimmy and Ellen doing something that somebody already figured out in another country and another language, is you can do a show that has talk show and game show elements and make it a pure, true variety show. Yeah, um, with a little bit of Americana in there as well, because yeah. you get the everyman or the everywoman 
as a contestant interacting with the celebrity in the setting of a game show, you're kind of, it's a melting pot of, of, of many of the things that people tune into these things for all into one. Yeah. And that, that is one of the great things is when you, when you have a contestant coordinator who is able to find people from all different walks of life, it is very gratifying to watch a game show and watch three people who would never ever be in the same room together otherwise and bring them together for this common purpose and, you know, have them rooting for each other, have them competing against each other, have all three of them having a good time together. And it's, it's a warm, fuzzy feeling about my business. Um, before, okay. So, so, uh, the contestant coordinator and the, uh, the idea of, of celebrities being a part of, of this stuff, perfect segue to go back to the letterman of it all. And, and to talk about that time in game shows, um, that time period in game shows. But before we do, uh, let's talk about your books. Let's talk about, because the latest one, uh, let's go into that one and, and, and talk about that. Cause you're about, you're, you're on a, on a book tour for this, right? You're actually going (laughs) to like, is this the biggest book you've ever released or, you know, so far it is, I can't really give you, uh, it's gong this book now on sale, uh, (laughs) at, uh, finer websites everywhere. Um, it's, uh, it's a wonderful history of the gong show, uh, with interviews with the people who were involved in it, people who worked on the show, people who were contestants on the show. Mm -hmm. Um, I spent about five years tracking down contact information of people that appeared to have been contestants on the show. And I would just cold call them and say, Hey, my name is Adam Neat. If I'm writing this book, were you a contestant on the gong show in 1977? And there would just be this hesitance of, (laughs) yeah, Hi, I'm here to dig up this thing that you haven't talked about in 45 years. Do you have a moment? So I've made um, a few of those phone calls, Adam. I, I yeah. know where you're coming from. I, I yeah. know the I know the pause that you're talking about. <laughs> oh, uh, just getting <laughs> to chat to with it. these folks. Yeah, yeah, getting to talk to uh, Count Banjola about his experience as a banjo playing vampire on the Gong Show, and just just the fact that nobody had ever reached out to him for an interview kind of stopped him in his tracks when I called him. Uh, I yeah, I sent out emails to i want to say maybe 100 contestants and some of them got no response uh i heard back from a few and without disclosing an identity i i got one email from somebody basically saying it's a carefully guarded secret that i was ever on the gong show please do not put my name in your book or mention (laughs) that i like there, there was one person who was definitely embarrassed and it was like i was asking about their their past and porn from the way that they reacted yep. to this, but yeah. Yep. Um, oh, but uh, yeah, it, and it was, <laughs> it, it was great talking to the staff at Chuck Barris productions. Um, Chuck is a guy that did not get a great amount of regard or respect uh, during his life or during his career. Uh, people yep. consider his shows trash. People consider his shows offensive. And you look at what he did and a lot of it is a precursor to what we have on television now, not just, you know, the dating game gave birth to so many dating shows. The newlywed game kind of showed the world that you can actually get an audience by getting married couples to open up about their secrets and just let it all hang out on national television. Uh, And then there's a reality television for sure. There's no question to me in, in my mind about that. And there's, and then there's the gong show, which wasn't exactly an original because there was a show that was a precursor to the Gong Show, Major Bo's uh, Amateur Hour on radio in the 1930s, which was the show where Frank Sinatra got discovered. And it was exactly the same thing. It was the it was the host in charge of the gong, but the host would bang a gong, uh, a gong if he wasn't impressed with the contestants. Um, and so Chuck simply revitalized this idea, but he put such a distinctive stamp on it and gave it such an identity. And 
as much as it may not have been the innovator in that concept, I think it was certainly the show that led to America's Got Talent, American Absolutely. Idol, X Factor, that realm of television shows. Yep. Uh, without a doubt. Uh, um, have you have you had some good adventures because of this book? Like I love I love the uh, the uncertain uh, stuff that happens when we do things like this, like like the oh, yeah. things that you'd never, ever, ever would call happening. Yeah. And you're like, oh, my goodness, this led to that. What are some, a couple of things that have happened to you because of this book? Um in putting together the book, uh, it, it was a matter of hunting people down and getting a chance to talk to them. And one of the great things I discovered was so many of these people who were contestants on the Gong Show in 1976 or 77, 78, 79, so many of them, one way or another, are still performing. They're, oh, whether it's that. gigs at coffee houses yep. or just you know, at a county fair or something, yep. a lot of them are still actively performing in some way. And so I reached out to a guy named Michael Sherman, uh, a.k.a. Mike the Vike, whose act on the gong show was he wore a Viking helmet and Groucho glasses, and he lip synced to a song while reacting in terror to a rubber snake that he was holding in his hand. Um, I promise you it's funnier than what one guy can describe. Um, but uh, I reached out to him and I said, can I interview? And he, we were figuring out a time and he says... Yeah, uh, come to this nursing home because I have a gig at this nursing home on Monday uh, and uh, come interview. And he he does impressions. And it's, since it's a nursing home, he has it very tailored to the audience. He was doing, you know, George Burns and Jack Benny impressions, and j just all these old show business legends for this nursing home audience. Mm -hmm. And so he did the set. And I came up and introduced him, introduced myself when it was over because we had only talked by phone. And he says, oh, oh, oh hold on, come up onto the stage because the audience hadn't left yet. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, this is Adam. He's a young man who's writing a book about the history of the gong show. And this 90-year-old man in a wheelchair in the front row waves his hand and says, I was on the gong show. <laughs> and, so, and so I go down there and I said, oh, you were on the gong show. What's and he says, my name is Nikolai, but when I was on the show, my name was Captain Hoppy. I was a clown and I did a dance in moon shoes. And I said, how did you end up on the show? And <laughs> Nikolai begins going into his whole life story. He was an immigrant from Russia and he moved here in the 1950s. And he had like he became aware that detectives were trailing him for the first few months there because they were incredibly suspicious yeah. of this Russian immigrant who just suddenly showed up in America and was, was wandering <laughs> through the country. But the interesting thing was he had been an orphan in Russia uh, and he had grown up in the 1930s raised by Americans in the section of Moscow that was called America Town because a lot of Americans had moved to Russia after the stock market crashed in 1929. So there was an American immigrant section in Moscow and he said he had grown up there. And so he moved to America uh, in the 1950s, I think. And by the 1970s, he was working as a janitor at UCLA, and Chuck Barris was on the campus of UCLA one day, and they began having a chat. And I think Nikolai was like a clown at children's birthday parties or something on the weekends. It was it was he it was like some kind of side gig for him being a clown. Yep. And Chuck said, "Well, then you ought to be on the show." And that was the kind of story that I loved. Was what really got me about this was. Nobody's story of being on the gong show was just, I called up and said, I have this idea for an act. I want to audition. Yep. Everybody had this zany series of misadventures that led to them being contestants on the show. And so it was great sitting down and hearing all these stories about here's what happened to me. And here are all the events in my life that led to me being on the gong show for two minutes in 1977. Everybody had a unique journey to that show. Um, my favorite uh, do you know how story. Many contestants were on that show. Um, 
they usually did nine per taping. Nine I was going to say there's taping. a lot. Like that's a yeah. hungry beast. The Gong Show is a hungry beast. There were a I lot know. of them, and among the people that I got to talk to um, for the book were Chuck's. Chuck had cute nicknames for a lot of his employees, and uh, the people that I interviewed, among others, were Chuck's shock troops. And the shock troops were the three employees who were in charge of the contestant auditions for the Gong Show, and Chuck <laughs> called them the shock troops because they saw everything. I bet they um, did. Yeah. Um, and one of them had a mind-blowing statistic, which was for every one act that made it on the show, they rejected nine. So if there are nine acts on the gong show, oh, that means man. 81 got rejected for that taping. And if you watch an episode of the gong show and you see those nine acts and you just process these nine acts were better than the 81 that they said no to. <laughs> Um, There's a lot to take in about that. Yeah, you were going to go to your favorite moment. I want to get to that in a second, but but you've touched on something here that I um, I find uh, fascinating, and I have also seen it very recently. So we just had our first uh, stupid human trick contestant on the Letterman podcast, Chris Clark, great guy, uh, and he has led me to two or three other folks who have been uh, who were featured in Stupid Human Tricks on 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 one of Letterman's incarnations. And the thing that I love, and 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 you touched on it earlier, and I just I I love it so much. It just it's so charming and adorable. Is many times these people are still performing on a regional level at nursing homes, at school assemblies, at different different things, at, at local car shows, things like that. They are still they just so badly want to perform and love it and get that charge, that feeling from it. And when you just talk to them about this stuff. They light up like a Christmas tree, and it's yeah. it's it's such a a delight to them. Um, it makes so much sense that a lot of the people that you talked uh, to, uh, you know, in, in in the prep for this book, feel the same way. I love that. I I, I love it when people are chasing a dream. I, it just it's a great feeling. I'm one myself. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I'm in present company included. Like you know, it's oh, yeah. really cool to watch people chase a passion that they have, and and to see whatever level of success that looks like, but just to see them doing it. And being able to exercise that, it's such a great feeling. I just adore it. Well, I think and, and we touched earlier about being uh, wrestling fans. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's surprising to think of the number of wrestlers from when I was a kid who were still at it somewhere in high school gyms. Yep. And it's the same situation there. It's not financial insecurity, but I think it's just that matter of when you have a job that involves getting 2000 people in a room to react to you, yes. that's gotta be a hard thing to walk away from. So you just keep chasing that and chasing that as long as your body will allow you to do it. Yep. Um, and that's gotta be a good feeling. Um, what I was about to say, my favorite story from yeah. assembling this book uh, again, uh, the banjo playing vampire count Banjola. Um, he uh, he's in his sixties now, and he had gotten married only fairly recently, just in the last few years when I first interviewed him. Mm -hmm. um, and he started dating his now wife when they were in their late fifties. Yep. And so they were chatting and, you know, when you, when you begin seeing somebody in, in, your late fifties, there's a lot of stuff to discuss. Sure. And somehow the conversation came up of stories from our past. What's something in our past that we should probably tell each other about? What's something that we don't know yet. And he kind of, as if revealing a big secret, he says, okay, you need to know this. I was a contestant on the gong show back in the 1970s. I was a banjo playing vampire. And he said his girlfriend now wife kind of rolls his eye, rolls her eyes at him. And she says, I know. And he says, well, wait, how do you know that? And she says, you don't remember me. 
I was there with my mother, who was one of the other contestants that day, and I kind of crushed on you, and I never forgot you. Are you kidding me? <laughs> so, Mrs. Count Banjola is the all-time <laughs> grand champion of playing the long game. <laughs> she was 19 years old. She got a huge crush on this guy who was dressed as Banjo playing vampire, never forgot him, and they ended up getting married <laughs> decades later. <laughs> What the hell went through his mind when she told him <laughs> that? Like, that is just, oh, that's spectacular. Um, okay, let's go to another part of the uh, uh, of game shows. I think about Hollywood Squares growing up. Yeah. Um, I think of John Davidson. I think of Jim J. Bullock. I think of Joan Rivers. Shadow. See, Stevens, you, you and I are the same generation. Because, absolutely. Yeah. It's a, you. You don't think of Peter Marshall. You think of John Davidson. I yeah. think of John Davidson. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. And and. Uh, uh, I don't. I think you know Darren Cox. I think you were on. Yeah. Were you on Irritable Lead Syndrome. Yeah. Okay. Yes, I was. So, mm -hmm. so he's had Shadow Stevens on, and I mean, I've been you know voraciously jealous about that since then because <laughs> I want to have him on talk about Late Late Show, but also because I want to talk to him about like Hollywood Squares. So I got a question for you about that because watching Hollywood Squares as a kid, you'd think every single one of the people who were panelists on that show in whatever square they were in might have been comedians because every time yeah. a line came up. They had a, they had a, you know, it's like a setting the volleyball. Okay. They got a spike, that kind of a thing. Um, how much were writers, how much did writers have to do with uh, game shows throughout the years in trying to make more entertainment to create, uh, to create lines for either contestants or people who were involved in the show? Yeah, uh, the Hollywood Squares, uh, what you're describing there are the zingers, which was yeah. on Hollywood Squares very often the question was followed by a joke answer, and then they would give the real answer. Um, and actually, one of the things that's been entrusted to us at the museum project that, that I'm working on that we yeah. can certainly talk about later, if yeah. not on another podcast, because this oh, one yeah. could very well run six hours. <laughs> um, so here's what happened. Um, NBC... Uh, put together this legal document about 800 pages in 1968 and i believe what happened just from reading the things in this legal document was they had an absolute disaster of a day with a show called pdq which was a game that involved uh soundproof isolation booths for the contestants and something glitched and from what i can gather reading this legal document uh Basically, none of the games played out fairly because of this glitch with the isolation booths, which led to this legal team putting together this huge, huge, monstrous book of how all the game shows are put together, how they go about preventing cheating, and how they atone for it if anything goes bad with taping. Yep. And so there's a section in this book about Hollywood Squares and how Hollywood Squares was put together because several celebrities who were on the show in its first few years sent concerned letters to the network saying – you know, before the taping started, we were pulled aside and we were told what kind of questions we'd be asked in the next show and told what kind of answers we want, we might want to give. Yep. Um, and we don't know if that's okay or if it's normal for game shows, because again, this is a decade after the quiz show scandals. Right. So they went to Merrill Heater and Bob Quigley, who were the bosses of Hollywood Squares, the co-creators of the show and the executive producers, and asked them, hey, are you giving the celebrities information in advance about the questions? And Heater Quigley responded with this notarized document, and it's part of this 800-page book that we have at the museum that we're trying to turn into PDF so we can share it. But they wrote this notarized uh, form with a, an attorney overseeing it, and they explained, yes, 
we tell the celebrities the questions they're going to get in advance on Hollywood Squares. And here's why we do that. Um, first of all, it's not the contestants don't earn X's and O's by the celebrities giving right or wrong answers. The mechanism of Hollywood Squares is after the celebrities have given their correct their answer, the contestant must decide if they believe that answer or not believe it. And agreeing or disagreeing correctly is how they earn the square. Oh, so it fundamentally doesn't matter if we give the contest if we give the celebrities answers because it's still up to the contestants to make that decision. So that's the first point they made. Yeah. The second point they want to make is okay, the contestants have to decide if they believe the answer that the the celebrities are giving or if they think it's a wrong answer. Right. If we ask these if we ask these celebrities a question that they've never heard before on the air and they sit there and think um uh <laughs> uh and they sit there for 45 minutes for 45 seconds going uh yeah. um I'm going to say the answer is France. Sure. Well, the amount of time they spend thinking about it kind of tips off they're pulling this answer out of thin air. You should probably say, I disagree. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> so on the other hand, what Hollywood Squares does is they pull the celebrities aside and they say, okay, you're going to be asked a question about a country in Europe. Here's a funny answer you can give. And if you don't know what the correct answer is, just say France. Right. So now when it goes on the air, Peter Marshall asks the question and the celebrity goes France. And now it's a dilemma for the contestants because they don't know if they've actually if they actually know this correct answer, if that's a bluff. And they said, that's why we give the contestants, that's why we give the celebrities information in advance. Um, so yeah, Hollywood Squares okay. did that. And they did have a team of writers that put together the joke answers for them. You, you, you took the, took the words right out of my mouth. So are we talking yeah. comedy? Or is this, is this a gig that aspiring comedy writers would have had back in the day uh, that they would go and write for a game show? Is that a gig that was available for a comedy writer back in the day? Oh, yeah, uh, definitely were. And there were shows that did employ professional comedy writers. Um, uh, Match Game, yep. uh, one of the other famous comedy game shows from that era, had uh, several professional comedy writers writing the questions, including among them Dick Bartolo. And writing the questions for Match Game was always his moonlighting job. His actual job was he was a writer for Mad Magazine. Wow. Um, so the perfect guy to write questions for Match Game. <laughs> uh, Hollywood Squares had a team of multiple joke writers and question writers, and, and they were writing the same things. They were writing the questions and the jokes. Um, and the celebrities got this pre-show briefing and one of the great things in this book was it transcribed the pre-show briefing that they got. And that's where we got the example that I just gave you. Yep. Um, but the celebrities would be briefed and this was the important thing. The only celebrities that got jokes in advance on Hollywood squares were the ones who had comedic backgrounds. They would never, if they had like a soap opera actor or if they had like George C. Scott was right. uh, uh, on the show one week and it's impossible to imagine George C. Scott on a game show, but he did <laughs> Hollywood squares once. And like, for example, they did, they didn't feed jokes to him. They gave him the, here are the questions and here are some possible bluff answers, but they didn't give George C. Scott jokes because George C. Scott isn't a comic. Right. And basically the logic was we don't feed comedy lines to people who don't have experience delivering them. Gotcha. Um, so, that made the people who did have comedic backgrounds come off brilliant because not only were they getting these great lines on Hollywood squares, but they had the right way to deliver them. Um, and, you know, it, it's very funny that they had this disclaimer at the end of the show where they basically said we've, it was just a wall of legalese, but the gist of it was the celebrities were given this stuff in advance. Um, 
but all of them got these reputations for being master ad-libbers for delivering the lines that they were given in advance. Paul Lind actually said that, I think, in a People magazine profile, that he was blown away that people thought he was a genius with ad-libs. And he said, no, I I need a script. I need those jokes for Hollywood <laughs> Squares. Um, and in fact, they had a disaster of a taping once. I learned this from one of the writers, uh, Harry Friedman, who went on to become the executive producer of Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy for about 25 yeah. years. Yeah. Uh, there was a day where Paul Lind bungled the order of the jokes he was going to give he went on, on he went on stage thinking okay <laughs> they've given me lines for four questions that i might be asked during the show and basically he gave he gave <laughs> joke number two for question number one and then it. joke number four for question number two so all of the jokes just got just total death and he was mad at the writers because like the writers gave me bad lines and they had to explain to him no you screwed up you gave it <laughs> you made two jokes in a row that didn't make sense so <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's oh, you talk about Letterman. Letterman would have pounced on that. He would have just loved to have seen something like that. Now, uh, fun fact, uh, Paul Lynn was with the show as a regular panelist for 12 years, 1967 to 79. Paul Lynn left Hollywood Squares in 1979. Do you know who the center square was for the first week that Paul Lynn wasn't there? No, sir. Our pal Dave. There it is. There David it is. Letterman was the center square when Paul Lynn quit Hollywood Squares. And now we're now it's a perfect segue. We've talked about <laughs> uh, we've talked about this. Let's talk about David Letterman's um, background when it came to game shows. You know, yeah. he jumps in the truck uh, famously from moved from moves from Indiana to California. The idea is, uh, you know, maybe I have an agent out there, maybe I don't. I think I know somebody, but either way, I know that I'm going to the Comedy Store because Johnny talks about the Comedy Store all the time on the Tonight Show. I'm going to go and integrate myself into that world. And he tells everybody he's going to be a, a maybe a writer, um, spends his time doing stand-up, uh, writing for certain people like Jimmy Walker and, and, and a couple other things as well. Uh, the project on the, 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 the short-lived Mary Tyler Moore variety show, but also lots of game show stuff. Lots of game show stuff. Uh, Dave has indicated uh, over the years that he was a game show fan when he was a kid. Mm -hmm. um, I, I believe that the two of us would be the very worst per people for him to be seated next to on an airplane because oh, yeah. he's indicated that he was at least to some extent a wrestling fan when he was a kid. Yeah, big time um, wrestling. Absolutely. Yeah. And he's also <laughs> mentioned he's made a couple of references over the years uh, to early game shows from television that lead me to think that he was watching a lot of game shows when I, when he was a kid, um, because he's mentioned, uh, he's talked about Gary Moore. He's made references to Dr. IQ, uh, which was a popular game show in the 1950s. And then there was a game show host in the 1950s, a much longer career than that. He hosted shows through the 1980s. His name was Jack Nars. And I'm, uh, friends with his son, uh, David now. And David heard, uh, David Nars heard Dave Letterman telling an anecdote on the air one night. And he said, you know, he said it in a jokey way, but I'm, I've always wondered if Dave was serious about this. Dave told an anecdote on the show one night about a family vacation to New York and gathering at the theater exit to see Jack Nars walk to his car. And <laughs> it sounded like a joke, but he, like Dave told the story about shaking Jack Nars's hand or something like that. And he's like, you know, did my dad shake hands with 10 year old David Letterman when Dave was on a trip to New York or something like that? And uh, I think in uh, one of the Letterman biographies out there, one of the stories told was Dave went to New York for a college trip when he yep. was like 20. Yep. And the whole group was all excited about what sites are we going to see in New York? Are we going to go to the Statue of Liberty? Let's go on a tour of the Empire State Building or Chrysler Building. Dave wanted to see the match game. Yeah. Like that was the only thing he cared about. He went to a yeah. taping of the match game at 30 Rock. Um. So, yeah, 
Dave was a game show fan and the early break that he got in his career, as much credit as Johnny gets for giving Dave his big break. And that is a deserved bit of credit for sure. Johnny does not get the credit for discovering Dave. The credit for discovering Dave goes to Alan Ludden, the host of password. This guy, um, the password is, um, (laughs) Alan Ludden was in Indianapolis in 1974 for, and, and they've never in hearing the story. It's never been clear why Alan was in Indianapolis. I suspect he was there on a promotional tour for Password All-Stars because they were okay. doing this big thing in 1974 where they were reinventing the format of Password and it was going to be this thing where six celebrities every week played the game for charity and it was going to be called Password All-Stars. And I'm guessing he was there as part of a publicity blitz for Password All-Stars. But yep. Alan agreed to give an interview on David Letterman's talk radio show uh, as long as he was in town. And Dave introduced him by making some kind of joke about it. Alan was there to uh, dedicate the entrance to the new Alan Ludden Wax Museum that was opening up in Indianapolis. <laughs> and that Alan did kind of a double take there. And uh, so he had. Oh, I love great Dave interview. so much. Yeah. Like, I, this... I, I love Dave so That is fantastic. 74 on his radio show. That's what he does. That is. Yeah. Perfect. And yep. he really kind of catches Alan's attention with how witty he is and how engaging he is. And, you know, Alan, the daytime network TV star from Los Angeles, is kind of expecting, yeah, I'll, I'll come in and do an appearance with a local guy. Yeah. But Alan was just really struck by how entertaining this guy on the AM talk radio station was. So after the interview was over, Alan asked Dave, so what are your plans for the future? And Dave confides in Alan Ludden, I'm thinking about moving to California in the next year and trying stand-up. And Alan gave him some contact info and says, if you make that move, get in touch with me. Mm-hmm. And Dave made the move and saved that contact information, and Alan Ludden remembered him. And Alan got him some early gigs doing – this was a time when game show production was – alive and well and very productive because all three networks had just wall-to-wall game shows and also syndication was thriving there were a lot of syndicated shows and so a lot of new ideas were in development from people trying to get on that gravy train and alan got dave a lot of gigs uh in what were called run-throughs which were before you even do the pilot stage you assemble executives and a few other people in an office and you play the game just to demonstrate what the game is and Mm -hmm. you don't want to shell out <clears throat> you don't want to shell out a thousand dollars for George Kennedy and Eva Gabor to come down to the office and play your game. Yep. So basically they had comedians come in because comedians were witty and off the cuff and could function in that role that you want celebrities for. And these comedians who work for far, far cheaper would come in and play the role of celebrity guest for this run through while everybody got a sense of how this game was played and how it would look on television and if it was worth pursuing. Yep. So he got bookings there, and as Dave built more of a more of a reputation for stand-up and built more of and more of a resume, Alan had grounds for getting him on camera gigs. Uh, Alan hosted a pilot produced by Bob Eubanks uh, from the Newlywed Game. Bob Eubanks opened up his own independent production company and came up with a game show format called the Smart Alex, hmm. um, which was. As as funny as it sounds, it was a very early form of Shark Tank. It was the same yeah. idea. People came on with their inventions, and a group of three judges would discuss how much financing to give them. And David Letterman was one of these sharks on this nascent form of Shark Tank, um, where we kind of basically shit all over the inventions and then say, oh, okay, <laughs> fund it anyway. Well, we'll 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 give you five hundred dollars to develop it. Yeah. Um. And so it's it's not. It may have worked. Who knows? We, we certainly see that there's an audience for Shark Tank now. Um, 
so the pilot never aired, but it's one of those things that's gotten out there in this era where everything is shared on YouTube. Um, and Dave is very engaging and very funny. And the next thing that Alan does is he's hosting a show in syndication called Liars Club, and he gets Dave booked on Liars Club, honestly, quite frequently. And I would say, if you're familiar with your 70s game shows, this analogy will make a lot of sense. But it seems to me that Alan Ludden was trying to turn Dave into the Richard Dawson of Liars Club. Richard Dawson was the wow. regular panelist. Richard Dawson was the regular panelist on Match Game, who, even before Family Feud, he was known for you know, kissing the women and the, the women would say, Oh, I'm so excited about meeting Richard. I can't wait to win the game and play the bonus <laughs> round with Richard. And they would kind of swoon over him. And if you watch Liars Club, it's very, very odd to hear Alan say this about Dave, but you know, the content, uh, if a woman contestant says, I'll go ahead and bet $80 on David Letterman, Alan would say something like, Oh, there you go. That uh, uh, Veronica here was drawn into Dave's eyes. Those eyes of Dave's got uh, Veronica's attention, and he's trying to <laughs> he's trying to play up Dave he's as this Dave dashing up. funny sure. man. Yeah, it's yeah. and it's very strange, but I think that's what Alan had in mind was he wanted Dave to be the Richard Dawson of Liars Club. Um, so Dave had a lot of turns on Liars Club. Yep. Um, and. Uh, as we now know from, again, all the biographies and all the articles written there, it, it was apparently his first date with Meryl Marco was a Liars Club taping. Yeah. Uh, you know, as we were recording this today, it's the uh, the, the debut of, of, of uh, Stupid Pet Tricks uh, on TBS. You know, Sarah Silverman uh, taking over this 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 uh, storied franchise. You think about Dave and Meryl and, and the ideas that they had um, and, and, and really how much game show and talk show actually do have combined those two certainly certainly influenced by uh by by that uh, yeah. by by the culture of game show and and you know it's really really interesting to hear uh that that is you know the, the first date that they had and 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 some of these did Merrill have any uh game show experience as well to my knowledge, no. I okay. uh, all, not before, but oddly enough, and it's so out of nowhere. Uh, after she left uh, late night, she yep. did a week on Win, Lose, or Draw uh, on NBC. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. Um, the, the the quick draw game that everyone yeah. can play. I Pictionary. believe was, the Pictionary yeah. had a game show. Everybody, I don't yeah. know. If you remember I, that. I believe it was the daytime version that Vicky Lawrence hosted, and I think yeah. she was there to plug Meryl Marco's guide to. Fabulous Living. If I'm guy, oh, one of her books. Oh, that makes yeah. sense. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. Um, yeah, she but didn't yeah. do it as a gig as a writer. She did it as a as a, uh, a contestant. She, she was a celebrity guest. Her, okay, okay, yeah. okay. That makes more sense. Okay, yeah. that makes a lot more sense. Okay, but it's wow. it's absolutely it's the only game show connection that I've ever seen, and it's just so out of nowhere to see her in that environment. I'm not saying that she couldn't or that she shouldn't, but it's just it's this sore thumb in Meryl Marco's career because it's the only one that she's ever done, to my knowledge. Um, oh, yeah, so she, I, I kind of like if, if we can go ahead and call her up right now and ask her how that gig came about, do you have her number? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't yeah, that be I'm so sorry. great? All, all I can do is recommend, uh, Meryl's Substack. Yeah. She's writing, uh, and writing constantly. Um, and when I say constantly, I mean, you know, predictably, I think once a week or once every two weeks, she puts out, an, uh, some, some amazing comedic writing, uh, many times combined, um, almost into like a graphic novel or a comic book type, uh, presentation. It is fantastic. I highly recommend everybody look at Meryl Marco's Substack. It's fantastic. She's just yeah. one of the funniest human beings on the planet she with is. that askew that we just love so much. Um, you know, just an absolutely fabulous, fabulous person. Uh, talking about Dave back then, um, 
so he didn't he didn't necessarily write on any of these game shows. He just did he just did on camera stuff or helping. He just uh, did on camera stuff. There's yeah. um one of the things that Shelly's given me, which was a fantastic treat. She's and I I don't have this photo ready to show you, but I have it physically here. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the the way Shelly has described the tapings to me for Liars Club was Ralph Andrews, who was the executive producer, uh, would come out and do what he thought was a good warm up. And Larry Hovis, who was the other executive producer of the show, would gather up the celebrities and say, let's do something better to try to fix what Ralph just did out there. <laughs> so Larry Hovis would kind of coax the other celebrities into coming out and doing their own version of a warm up. And I have photos of Dave doing audience warm up for Liars Club. I have a photo of him with the oh. microphone doing hi, where are you from? And just kind of entertaining the audience before they all walk up to the stage and begin playing the game. Um, so that's, that was the extent of Dave's involvement was on at least the occasions when he did Liars Club, he would concede to doing audience warm up. Otherwise he was just a panelist. I don't, I doubt that he ever actually full fledged worked on the show. I know he's talked about writing unsolicited sitcom scripts. Yep. It wouldn't shock me to learn that he wrote a question packet for Hollywood squares, but it, I've never heard anything like that about him trying to get a, a job on a game show. Um, but everybody kind of had their eye on Dave because he was a, a great comedic talent who was good at playing these games. Yep. And that's what led to him doing. Um, he eventually hosted a game show pilot. He hosted at least two. Uh, one was called ask a silly question. And that yeah. has never escaped from any vault that I know of. I have no uh, idea yeah, what ask no. a silly question was. I just yeah. know the title. Uh, and then he did, he hosted another one called the Riddlers, which game show network unearthed and aired as part of the thing. And um, the story there, as Dave tells it was they were, they were supposed to shoot multiple pilots that day. Yep. And the reason they were going to shoot multiple pilots, there are two schools of thought in the game show world about how to shoot pilots. Yep. While the show that airs must be played on the, on the level and you cannot rig it. And there are federal laws against rigging game shows yep. because a game show pilot is never intended to air uh, reason being that sometimes they change the rules between the pilot and you don't sure. want a show that has different rules from the rest of the series. So game yeah. show pilots generally never air. And because game show pilots never air, there's one school of thought that you rig a pilot for a game show to show all the things that could happen. If your game yeah. is particularly involved, if there are a lot of things that could happen, you basically script a game where every rule of the game comes into practice at some point during the show. And that's rails. what you, yeah. Put it on rails to show exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The other school of thought, and this is what Mark Goodson did, and this is what a lot of other producers did, was they would produce literally five, six, seven, eight pilots for a game show. Yep. And they would all be played on the level. And the logic was, if we tape eight pilots for this show, one of them will be something that we can show the network that covers everything that happens during the game. So we throw the spaghetti so, against the wall, and whichever right. one sticks, that's the one. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, so the Riddlers was supposed to be a show like that. Uh, and as Dave tells the story, um, and there's some indication that he might be remembering this wrong, but Dave's memory of this was they were supposed to shoot multiple pilots that day. They shot the first pilot. And then Bob Stewart, who is the creator and executive producer walks on stage and says, okay, I think that's enough. And he just sent everybody home and he had kind of this disappointed tone of voice when he said that. And the Riddlers didn't take off, but basically, yeah, it's, if you ever get a chance to watch it, it is kind of a dead fish. Um, sure. Yeah. Um, so I can see why it didn't go on the air, but 
Bob Stewart was a guy who, and by the way, the whole reason that Dave got cast to host that pilot was because Betty White recommended him. Because now, as a result of being a friend of Alan Ludden, Dave got to know Betty White, who was Alan's wife. Yep. And so Betty had learned that Bob Stewart was developing this comedy game show that involved uh, celebrities asking riddles. And, and by the way, everybody, said, oh. this is that Betty White. Yeah. That Betty White, the Betty that White that we Betty all White. celebrated, you know, when she hosted SNL and, and, and we celebrated her at the end of her life, the Golden Girl. That's the Betty White he's talking about. Yeah. Yep. And uh, so Betty White recommended uh, to Bob Stewart that he hired this guy named David Letterman, this young comedian to host the pilot. And so that's yep. how Dave got that job. So that was one of the stories from the Riddlers. Joanne Worley has told this story. Joanne Worley was uh, of Laugh-In was one of the celebrity guests for this pilot they shot uh, called the Riddlers. And you need to understand something about the television environment because it's changed very, very much. You now see primetime game shows. So Jamie Foxx is hosting a primetime game show. You have yep. an Oscar winner hosting a game show, yep. which would have been unthinkable. This was the era of the professional game show hosts yes. where it was it was the generation where it was the same five guys hosting all of the game shows on television. Yeah. And Peter Marshall has spoken about this to me and Gene Rayburn talked about this during his life, about the fact that once you hosted a game show in the 1970s, that was what you did on television. Yes. Um, because that was that was how the audience was going to identify you if you hosted a show. And that was how the networks would decide, okay, that's your skill set. That's what yep. you do. You're not going to get considered for the lead role in a primetime sitcom. You're not going to get considered for anything else. If, if you were a game show host in the 1970s, you were a game show host. Which and is why only... Dave was very, very careful not yeah. to get into that business and he's right. talked about uh, and that. Joanne because, uh, Joanne yes. Worley kind of takes the credit for this. She said she pulled Dave aside and she 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 had a sense of Dave's career at that point and she could tell he was upwardly mobile in the world of comedy. He was going places. And she pulls him aside and she says, you know, good luck, but just so you know, if this pilot sells and you host the series, that's going to be your career. There you go. And yep. she said you, you could tell from the look on his face that he was really thinking about that yeah. and uh as hal gurney said you know dave's career arc if dave had become a game show host dave would have hosted something that would have been a big hit yep. and it would have lasted a long while it would have lasted a while it would have gotten a se several years dave would have made a good amount of money while that show was on the air and then once it was canceled he would have disappeared forever um so hal gurney said that yeah as much as i love game shows i think i would say Based on the environment and based on the way the game show world worked at that time, Dave did dodge a bullet by not getting that gig. Yeah. Um, things did work out better for him. So, um, so by the way, Hal Gurney uh, just turned 99. Happy birthday to Hal Gurney. Oh, he bless him. Say, throw that and out there. Hal, Hal has a, uh, a game show story. He told this in his Archive of American TV interview. He guested it. He guest hosted a game show in the late 1940s um, hosted by Dennis James. Like I said, the first game show. Uh, okay, mother. And for some reason, Dennis was indisposed that day, and they couldn't even call. They couldn't even call in another host to fill in there because the Rolodex was so small at that point. So basically, yeah. Hal Gurney got pushed in front of the camera and hosted a game show for one day. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, Dave ends up not hosting game shows, but he continues being a guest yep. on uh, Pyramid, which is a show host, uh, produced by Bob Stewart. Mm -hmm. Um. And Pyramid was probably the show that he did the most of all the game shows in that period. He did he did Pyramid quite a bit um, and was not great at the Winter Circle bonus round. I don't know that anybody ever won $20,000 with uh, David Letterman as their partner, but he was very, very good at the main part of the game. Um, and Dave was living in Los Angeles th at that time and commuting 
not commuting, but flying into New York whenever they wanted him as a guest on Pyramid. And the memory that sticks out to me of all the Letterman appearances on Pyramid that I've watched, there's an episode where Dave walks on stage to start the game. Well, first of all, there are two memories. One is he walked on stage in this New York game show wearing a Dodgers jacket, and the audience <laughs> booed the celebrity guest making their entrance <laughs> as a result of that, which is something you don't want for a game show, but that's that's how Dave was. Um, but the other memory was there was an episode where the celebrity guests walk out, Dave and his celebrity opponent for that week, and they take their seats, and here's your host, Dick Clark, and Dick walks out. And Dick kind of has a smirk on his face, and he says, uh, Dave, before we begin the game, uh, Mr. Stewart has asked, has everything been worked out with your hotel room? And Dave smiles and says, yes, everything's been worked out with the hotel room. <laughs> Dick says, do you want to go ahead and tell America this story? He says, well, I flew in from Los Angeles to be a guest on this show. And since I'm flying in from Los Angeles, Bob Stewart Productions agreed to put me up in a hotel for the night. And uh, about two hours ago, I gave Bob Stewart uh, a call after I checked in the hotel and I told them, listen, I cannot stay in this hotel. You have to book me in another hotel. Find me another hotel right now. And Dick says, what was the problem with your hotel? And Dave smiles and he says, no bathroom. <laughs> they booked him in pretty much a no-tell motel that had no bathrooms in it because the thinking was you were only using that room for about two hours. <laughs> so they had to find a nicer place for Dave to stay while he was taping Pyramid. Um, and that's a true story. That's not that's not yeah. a little anecdote they would feed them, you know, before. That's no. a that's a that's a no. real. Um, so, uh, Bob (laughs) used him on that show. He used him on another show called the love experts, which was a strange show. It was, uh, contestants come on the show and explain personal romantic problems that they were having. Mm -hmm. And then celebrities would give them guidance on how to solve that problem. Um, to be honest, of all the episodes that ever aired of this show, Dave was the least interesting element. The most interesting piece of video that survives of this show, a 19-year-old Jamie Lee Curtis describing the night that she lost her virginity to Bill Cullen. Uh, (laughs) Whoa! (laughs) Who, for anyone who needs mental image of Bill Cullen, Bill Cullen was the warm, friendly, nice old man hosting game shows. Thick glasses... Had a limp from polio, so he didn't even walk. He, he was just this friendly old man in a chair hosting a game show. And it, well, Jamie Lee, what do you think of this? Uh, this woman is interested in using a waterbed. What do what do you how, what do you think of waterbeds? And Jamie Lee Curtis, all of nineteen years old, says, "I lost my virginity in a waterbed." <laughs> I just want to be so, very very clear yeah. because the way that you said that uh, originally <laughs> opened with the story, uh, someone may have misinterpreted what you said. Is that? Jamie Lee Curtis lost her virginity actually to Bill Cullen. No, no. She recounted the story <laughs> to Bill Cullen. She recounted the story to Bill Cullen, yes. About the waterbed adventure. <laughs> uh, that is... See, which, well, which was a fascinating full circle thing because the impending birth of Jamie Lee Curtis was announced on a game show with Bill Cullen 20 years earlier. Tony, uh, Tony Curtis announced he was going to be a father on I've Got a Secret. Um, but, um... Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> circle of life. Uh, but yeah, well, and it just shows show it shows and... the width and the breadth of and the depth of of game shows and and how connected they are to uh you know they 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 are a part of television right from the very beginning right in the fabric oh, yeah. all the way up till now the evolutions that they have had um I want to throw in a name too because obviously deeply connected with Dave as well but also game shows and that's Merv Griffin. Oh yeah. Um when did Merv Griffin get into the the game show business and I mean I mean that there's a guy that really really uh had a lot of uh the the massive success and profits that he have he has uh, had seen in his life came from game shows 
yeah, Merv got into the game show business with a show for Goodson Todman called uh, Play Your Hunch. Uh, Mark Goodson, Bill Todman Productions had this interesting business strategy where every time they had a show that became a hit, they would immediately introduce another show that was fundamentally the same idea. They would rip off their own idea. And uh, the logic there seemed to be, if we rip off our own ideas, we're staying ahead of our competitors who would go ahead and rip off our idea anyway. So... Goodson Todman had a hit show with To Tell the Truth, which is three people yep. all claiming to be the same person, and the celebrities cross-examine them to figure out who the real person is, and then they vote on who they think the real one is, and will the real person please stand up? And that was To Tell the Truth. And so very shortly after, they introduced a show called Player Hunch, which is To Tell the Truth for people with no attention span. Um, they would walk out, they, they would introduce three people, and they'd say, okay, one of these people is a New York City cop. The other two are not. They're just actors that we brought in for the day. Just on sight alone, which one of these people do you think is a cop? And I, I think person X is the cop. No, I think person Z is the cop. All right, the real one is person Z. You're correct. Right. And that was play your hunch, was they would just bring out this rapid succession of three people. Here's one fact. Pick the one that's true, and you're right. good to go. And right. so that was play your hunch. And Merv Griffin was a success on that show to the point that NBC looked at him and said, you know, we think he's got a shot here as a talk show host. And this was right when all the turmoil happened with uh, Jack Nars and Jack Nars gave his notice. Yeah. And also as strange as it sounds, looking back on it, knowing the success they had, a lot of people at NBC were not sold on Johnny Carson. A lot of them did not think that Johnny Carson had what it took, but everybody really thought highly of Merv Griffin and yeah. his performance as uh, a host on Player Hunch and thought that that was transferable to talk shows. So they actually signed Merv Griffin for a very strange plan B thing that they were doing, which was they hired Johnny Carson to do the Tonight Show, but they also gave Merv a daytime talk show at exactly the same time, and not only a concurrent talk show, but using the same set, which imagine being Johnny Carson and seeing not only are they giving this show, this guy a talk show at the same time, but they're having him do it on my set. Yep. Kind of the implication there is we're ready to plug somebody in if you're, if you're not working out. Yep. And so Merv Griffin was hired to be NBC's backup in case Johnny crashed. Things worked out with Johnny, which led to Merv going into syndication and then briefly being on CBS and then going back into syndication. Yep. And Merv is just one of those people where if you describe him to somebody who didn't know who Merv Griffin was and had never heard the name before, it almost sounds made up. Real Merv Griffin was this singer yeah. who became a real estate tycoon while hosting a daytime talk show and also dabbled in creating game shows while he was building his real estate empire. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, Merv Griffin got this idea. For, he began creating game shows uh, shortly after he began doing his talk show. He created one called uh, Word for Word, which I have a lovely copy of the home game here, naturally, and it's a very entertaining <laughs> game. Um, and he also uh, he created a show in response to the quiz show scandals, basically, because, again, after the quiz show scandals, nobody wanted to do game quiz shows for a while. Nobody wanted to do hard Q&A trivia. Uh, they only wanted to do games, lighthearted games, along the lines of Concentration or Video Village or Password. Not that there's anything wrong with any of those games, but they are no. hard trivia shows. But yeah. the networks were steering clear of hard trivia. And uh, Merv was kind of lamenting there hasn't been a good hard trivia show since uh, the quiz show scandals happened. Everyone's afraid that somebody's going to give the contestants the answers. And his wife turns to him and says, why don't you make a show where that's the premise? And Merv says what? And she says, make a game show where the premise is you give the contestants the answers. And Merv says, I'm I'm not following this. And she says, the answer is 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. What's the question? 
what's the address of the White House? White House. And she nods her head and she says, five, the answer is 5,280. What's the question? And he says, how many feet are in one mile? And she says, that's your show. Give contestants the answers and they have to give the questions. And that's how we get Jeopardy. And then Murr follows Jeopardy 11 years later with this idea that's, as he describes it, it was stitched together from two different childhood memories. One was uh, his family went on long, long car trips when he was a kid. And to stay entertained in the backseat, he and his sister would play hangman on just scratch paper and with yep. a pencil. Yep. And the other memory he had was he loved going to a county fair and there was a game involving a wheel of the county fair. And he said he would just stand there for the longest time and not even play it, but he would just stand there and watch the wheel spin because he was mesmerized by that. So he took the wheel and he took the hangman game and he combined those and he made Wheel of Fortune. And the funny thing about that is if you look at Merv's entire body as a game show producer and a game show creator, Really, those were the only two successes he had. Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy were the only two successful ideas he had, but they're two of the most what successful. Other, yeah, yeah, what other I mean, two did he need? He didn't need yeah. any others. Yeah. No. The two most is... successful game shows in the history of television were Merv Griffin's creations. So uh things worked out well for Merv anyway. So so um, he was in the game show business when when all of Dave and all of his comedy store stand-up friends mm-hmm. who were, you know, moonlighting doing game show stuff you know, trying to get their, their careers going, but then they would also do panel on Merv's show all the time. The, yeah. Merv was already in the game show business at that point. Yeah. Okay. Merv was already uh full fledged in the game show world. And really uh, by the time that Dave would have been on Merv's show, Merv had already pretty much sealed his reputation, you know, yeah. Merv. Yeah. Merv had already Jeopardy had had an 11 year run by that point, And wheel of fortune was just starting to take off. So Merv already had that name and that reputation for the game show world. In addition to all the talk shows and right. everything else that was going on. Um, I'm not sure that Merv can take any credit for kind of shaping Dave's career other than a gig is a gig. And I'm or sure. Being the a venue. Yeah. 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 It, it gave him another venue and gave him more exposure. Um, so that's Merv's role in Dave's career. Uh, another guy that we ought to talk about if we're sticking with the late seventies is, yep. uh, Robert Morton, um, who you've certainly had on the show. And I don't believe you brought this up and I don't believe he brought it up. Were you aware that Robert Morton created a game show? No, no idea. Okay. I have no idea. So this is a great story and this is something, there are several deep dives about this story on YouTube. Go uh, message but, him uh, while I'm listening to you, dude, you created a game show. I'm going to do yeah. that right now. <laughs> Go right ahead. Um, what? I had no yeah. idea. Yeah. Morty, okay. So hold note just, on us. Yeah. So just to give a thumb, because this really is an interesting story in TV history. In Columbus, Ohio, there was a cable system developed in 1977 called Cube. And the idea of Cube was it was a 30 channel cable system in the days where, you know, most people at best had five channels on their TV. So that was already exciting was the fact that, oh, if we sign up for this cable service in Columbus, Ohio, we'll get 30 channels. But also one of the big selling points of Cube was you had a special remote control that had five buttons on it for voting. And the idea was the shows on Cube would have interactive elements to it and you would vote on certain aspects of the show. So they had a show that was like the gong show called Talent Search. And it was you could press your button to say whether or not you liked the act and the host would bang the gong if you weren't happy with the act that you were seeing at the moment. Um, (laughs) They did a live broadcast once uh, in a maternity ward and the audience voted on what these couples would name their babies right after the baby was born. (laughs) So that was the idea. You had this remote control with five buttons on it that you could use to cast a vote. And in the Cube Studios, 
your vote would register instantly. There was no tabulation. There was no waiting or counting or anything like that. Wow. They would just instantly see how everybody at home was pressing the buttons on their remote control. So uh, Morty and a gentleman named How Howard Blumenthal, who I'm now working with on the National Archives of Game Show History at the Strong Museum. Uh, Howard Blumenthal was the son of Norm Blumenthal, who was the producer and the Rebus puzzle artist for the original concentration for 14 years on NBC. And Howard moved to uh, Columbus to be a part of this project. And they decided, you know, a game show would probably showcase the voting element. And Family Feud had just gone on the air. So they said, OK, maybe a game show like Family Feud. So they came up with this idea where the premise was basically Family Feud being done live. Um, they would ask a survey question and you would see five answers to that survey question on the screen. And the audience would vote instantaneously on which of those answers they wanted in the survey. Yep. And then the contestants in the studio would try to pick the answer that was the number one answer in the survey that was just being taken right at that moment. This is the um, late seventies. Like yeah. We now we've got America's got talent now. And, yeah. and, and, and these, you know, voting shows where, you know, they got a 24 hour turnaround. This is the late seventies and they were promoting this interactivity. That is astounding to me. Yeah. So uh, they, they developed the show and they called it, how do you like your eggs? And because Howard's dad had been at NBC at 30 rock for 14 years, Howard flew back to New York city and went to a taping of to tell the truth and stopped Bill Cullen on the way to the exit and said, Hey, I'm Norm Blumenthal's son. Um, I'm working on this game show in Columbus. And he explained the whole idea to Bill and they said, would you come to the Warner offices in New York? They, they they still had an office in New York, even though all this stuff was happening in Columbus. Yep. And they brought Bill in and they described the game for him for 10 minutes. And Bill said, OK, yeah, I'll do it. So they flew in Bill Cullen because the idea was for Columbus, Ohio, that's an A-list star. Absolutely. Uh, that's a, that's a Absolutely. big get. So Bill Cullen came in for uh, four episodes to host this thing called How Do You Like Your Eggs that Robert Morton created. Uh, and it was a live version of, um, like I said, Family Feud. Yeah. And it's not it's not terrible. The setbacks of the show are basically because it's new technology and they haven't figured out how to make the technology work perfectly yet. It's a little clunky. So there are, yeah. It's, yeah, so there are technical clunks and glitches throughout the night, but yep. the actual game is actually kind of an intriguing game. It's not a terrible idea that Robert and Howard developed together, um, but uh, it ran for four episodes and to hear, and I've never heard Howard's account of this, but to hear... Uh, I've, I've never heard Robert's account of this, I should say. I've heard Howard's account. Howard's account was there was a guy at Cube named Steve Carlin who had been the producer of $64,000 Question in the 50s. And Steve Carlin just did not like Howard or Robert and didn't want anything to do with their ideas. <laughs> and just basically junked How Do You Like Your Eggs on the principle of because it had been their idea. Um, so really? How Do You Like Your Eggs? Oh yeah, so God. How Do You Like Your Eggs didn't go past these four episodes. And the Cube experiment limps along for about another four years, but they cannot gain any traction. It's not growing the way that they thought it was going to grow. Um, people just were not interested in interactive television. And as somebody said kind of in the postmortem, I think people just don't want to get involved. Watching television is a passive activity and nobody nobody wants to do anything while they're watching TV. That was, that was one of the theories of why it didn't work. But here's the postscript to Cube. Okay, so they were touting it as the beginning of interactive television. And that was the big deal that they wanted to make was you can interact with the series you're watching. Nothing gets accomplished there. But in those 30 channels that they were selling as part of the Cube package, they had developed one channel uh, called Pinwheel. 
and that was kind of an enticement to parents to make them think this is good for your kids. This is uh, watching TV is good for your kids because we've sure. got this channel called Pinwheel that's just going to be 24 hours a day of educational good for your kids programming. Yeah. And then they had this other thing called Sight on Sound, which was you could watch music on television. It would be like the sound waves that you would see on Winamp, but there would also be a disc jockey talking during the song in between the songs. So you could actually watch music on your television. And both of those ideas end up being developed into something bigger. Pinwheel becomes Nickelodeon. Yep. And Sight on Sound is one of the elements that gets reshaped and turned into MTV. So the interactive element of Cube completely fails, but these two channels that they came up with as part of the 30 channel package were two of the most important cable channels of all time. Yeah. Never mind the remote control and the, and, yeah. the, and the power of what the remote control so, could do down the future. Cause I mean, this yeah. is an archaic, that's an archaic version of a remote control back then compared to what it's turned into now. Um, and then, and then of course the interactivity, I mean, really at the end of the day, the way that you've just described cube, a whole bunch of ideas that were ahead of their time that just couldn't catch up. Like, uh, you know, Nintendo released yeah. the, uh, the VR boy, uh, you know, all yeah. those years ago, right? You know, the, the you know the virtual boy, all those years ago. But now VR is becoming a thing. Yeah. Um, that's fascinating about Morty. Yeah, doing and, that. and it is that's... it is worth it if you if you like I said there are several people on YouTube and there are several websites that have done deep dives on it, and it really is good reading if you're a TV history fan because I, I say this with a straight face and it sounds like a backhanded compliment. It really is one of the most important failures in the history of television because so many. So many careers of people who went on to do bigger and more important things started off with this failed experiment at uh, in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. And like I said, two critically important cable channels came out of it. So it, it, it really is worth delving into if that's something your listeners want to check out. Definitely. Um, yeah. I do want to get into Dave more if there is more Dave uh, uh, game show stuff here in a minute. But but at the end of the day, I, something just occurred to me. Uh, you know, it's so funny. Um when you look back on history and, and, and what you described, you know, if you became a game show guy, if you came, became Wink Martindale, you're going to be Wink Martindale. And that's what you're going to be known as forever. You know, if you're in a movie ever, it's going to be because we need Wink Martindale in this role. Uh, you know, like you think about Bob Barker in, uh, in, in, in uh, happy Gilmore, you know, things like that. But now though, uh, when you fast forward to where we are right now, how many talk show hosts or former talk show hosts have gone, and moved over and created some sort of a game show, uh, yeah. you know, that they're involved in now. Uh, you know, I think about Jay Leno, I think about Craig Ferguson, you know, Fallon doing it, you know, concurrently, he's kind of doing I both. mean, it's a, it's a business venture. It's it's how you get LeBron James, executive producer of The Wall, or thing, uh, things like that. It's uh, yeah. Game shows have become, and it, it's really interesting to see how this not very respected genre has sort of become accepted in a lot of circles. Um, was Regis a what part of that or did it happen before that? It probably happened before that, I would think. Well, before that, Regis had two game shows in the 1970s. He hosted a show called The Neighbors and he hosted a show called uh, Almost Anything Goes. Yep. And neither one of those really gained traction. But what's interesting to me is, you know, and this is what you learn from having to go through newspaper archives to research books about what was happening in the game shows of the 1950s, 60s, 70s. 
oh my god, the newspaper columnists and the critics who had to write about game shows just hated them. So <laughs> it's so it's the one tiresome thing oh. about writing books about the game shows uh, about game show history is you have to get that history from people who just hate what they're writing about and they're crapping all over this thing that you're passionate about while they're giving you the information that you need for the book that you're working on. That's kind of um, fascinating. Like, and well, that's and very you, frustrating. You wrestling, you talk about wrestling. Yeah, I think it's similar. I think it's a similar uh, kind of a a stereotype almost i think that that might be comparable. and you see and you see mainstream sports resources covering pro wrestling now like a normal thing yes. and the same thing has happened to game shows where yes. instead of the generation that just looks at it as an outlier like oh okay we'll cover television but also <laughs> i guess this is on television now we have a generation of people who they see game shows and wrestling as more of a fact of existence. They've just always been there and they see them the same way that they see basketball, the same way that they see sitcoms, the same way that they see football, yeah. the same way that they see it. They're all a part of the same stew and yeah. they're not seen as weird outliers or something that doesn't belong or something that doesn't fit in. Yeah. Um, and as a result, you see more respect and more acceptance for them. I'm not saying you have to like them, but there's a place for them now. Yeah. Um, but uh, so that's what's happened with game shows. And you've seen the same thing happen in wrestling. Um, and so that's what leads to, again, that's what leads to Oscar winners and Oscar nominees hosting game shows is these are people that grew up watching match game and people who grew up watching Hollywood squares. Yes. And instead of thinking, Oh man, people are going to think my career is dead. If they see me on the panel of match game, it's more like, Oh yeah. Match game. I've watched that. Yeah. That'd be fun. Let's go ahead and do that. Yep. And it, it doesn't, it doesn't mean the same thing to them that it would have meant years earlier it, it it's not some sort of it's not something to be concerned about um, it's so gilbert, <laughs> gilbert godfrey there was a great story that he told once on his podcast about uh when he was doing a week of uh hollywood squares in the early 2000s yeah. and that it, it, the time frame here is important for the story here he was on hollywood squares in the early 2000s and in the square next to him was dom deloise <laughs> and dom deloise had this concerned look on his face as they were coming to the stage and sitting down and getting ready to start the taping and gilbert turns to him and says are you okay and dom deloise says do you think being on a game show panel is going to hurt my career? <laughs> Gilbert. Oh yeah. God, 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 uh, be with Gilbert. Gottfried. Yeah. We miss him. And, Bob and he Sagan had some game show stories. I, I, I wish Nothing, not taking anything away from him, but I, I wish he had lived long enough to get me booked on Amazing Colossal Podcast. I would have loved to have been on <laughs> oh, that. Yeah. Trip. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh well. you'd have you'd have some fun on that. You'd yeah. have some fun on that. Uh, that is such a funny line. Oh my yeah. god, that's a funny line. Because when you were saying Dom DeLuise, you know, in the in the early two thousands, I'm thinking, wasn't he there in like <laughs> he was there in, he was there in eighty five too, wasn't he? He was there. Um, I feel like Dom DeLuise would have been a fixture yeah. of 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 that show for a long time. Yeah. Um, Who's the longest center square for Hollywood squares? Uh, easily Paul Lynn for about 12 okay. years. We actually, okay. hold on. You know what? If you're willing to wait for me to open up a word document, I'm actually, I'm in the middle of working on a potential book project. Nice. Um, let's see. Hold on. We yeah, got to do no, the control no, no. F thing. Control yeah, yeah, yeah. F <laughs> to find the exact thing in a 400 page document that I want to tell you about. You are very much the Don the Don Giller of uh of 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 game shows, aren't you? Yeah. 
Okay, here we go. <laughs> this is your all-time Hollywood Squares panel. Uh, okay. I, 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 this is something that I'm putting together for the book, and it's the, the, the idea is it's the nine celebrities who were on the most episodes of that show. Oh, I love uh, it. And a friend of mine, uh, Brendan McLaughlin, helped me put this together. Um, Paul Lind, 3,361 episodes of oh. Hollywood Squares. Um, <laughs> now, okay, so that's wow. that's your number. To give you a sense of perspective how big that number is yep. second place charlie weaver 2028 episodes paul lind had over a thousand yep. episodes on him uh then we have uh george gobel uh excuse me no rosemary is third rosemary okay. is third with 1772 george gobel 1748 episodes wally cox 1715 episodes uh joan rivers uh, that, i was gonna say she was she, she was my one who i thought would be up there for sure Excuse me, uh, Karen Valentine is uh, 920 episodes for Karen Valentine. Then Joan Rivers, 860 episodes. Wow. Uh, and then Vincent Price, 817 episodes. Whoopi Goldberg, who was a regular panelist on that show for three seasons, 690 yeah. episodes. So she only barely makes the top nine for that show all time. Wow. And a lot of people <laughs> would think of Whoopi there for sure. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people would, would say that that was a kind of a holdover in her career was when she was doing that. She, she yeah. was there a lot. Um, that's insane. Yeah. Joan Rivers. I, I, one of the ways that reasons I fell in love with Joan Rivers, you know, growing up was because of that show. You um, know, that's, the, it, it's one of the funny things is where, you know, people from first yeah. and having to get a sense of perspective on their career later. My story is the same as yours. I knew Holly, I knew Joan Rivers as Hollywood squares lady before I knew anything else about her. Yep. And now being able to look back and appreciate what she had been prior to that, it really it feels kind of special and kind of wonderful that she was a regular on Hollywood Squares. She it's it was good to have her there. And I feel um, like 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 looking back on it and I've never had this discussion with anybody about Joan other than like putting these two things together. I feel like she was on Hollywood Squares because it was after she the Tonight Show dried up. I, yeah, I, I, I think that yeah that's she became what, she became she the did. she became the center square after the Fox debacle yeah. happened and yeah. the very next season she was the center square and what's funny about it is if you watch and i didn't realize this until i began cataloging stuff for game show history her time as a regular in the center square was actually very short i think maybe a year and a half at best yep. um uh, just a very short tenure and it was just a way for her to kind of rebuild and i guess collect her bearings after this very disastrous unpleasant year of bad press for her yep. um and i would say it certainly worked and uh, there are a lot of fans that remember that era of hollywood squares um a lot more strongly than they remember the peter marshall version oddly enough because the, the davidson version got a few extra years of life as a result of reruns you know there's a moment i'll never forget on that show uh when they pranked him and they, <laughs> they pranked him and they threw uh, one of the contestants threw yes. the other one off the yeah <laughs> Now, just to go into a little bit, because that sounds so strange to hear you describe it. Basically, they, they brought in two stunt people to play the yeah. contestants yeah. Uh, for Hollywood Squares. <laughs> and you need to understand, the 1980s version of Hollywood Squares had a very unusual set design for anyone who never saw it. Because it wasn't like the contestants were on the floor looking up at the game board, as had been on the original show. They yeah. did this very strange thing where the contestants and John Davidson were on top of this tower basically <laughs> for Hollywood squares. So they were facing the celebrities directly in, in that giant square arrangement. So the contestants on the Hollywood squares, the 1980s version were way up high. And so these two contestants staged getting into a fight and John Davidson freezes. John Davidson is just looking at the camera and going, I have no idea what to do. And 
one yeah, contestant one shoves the other looked, and they they looked at his card they he, yeah you know he looked at the card and he said oh i'll disagree i'll disagree yeah. and the other contestant said hey he just cheated he looked at the card and they got into a scuffle <laughs> they got into a scuffle and <laughs> the woman punched the man off of that tower where they're where they're both going the game it's I, I, i've never gotten a sense of it but it's it's just a really weird set design um <laughs> and so, i don't think that was a work like like yeah. with davidson like i don't his his acting is, no, John, is top yeah. shelf. If he if he was in on that at all, I don't. No, think they he was. they pranked him. They they pranked Tom Bergeron similarly years later. They had <laughs> they basically had two contestants turn in the worst game ever played of Hollywood Squares, and it was just it was just to watch what it would take for Tom Bergeron to crack and give up on the show <laughs> by having these two people just be so terrible at it. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, and did you ever see Larry on Hollywood Squares? Larry. Larry Bud Melman. Oh gosh, yeah, oh uh, yeah. yeah, I've seen footage they, of it. I don't remember. Uh, you know, they I had him guest host yes, segment. They, they kind of they kind of trolled the audience by having John sit in the square and Larry yeah. is there, and they have you thinking Larry is going to guest host the whole show, and they're doing. <laughs> One of the things that I appreciate about the the gag is somebody else outside of Letterman's world got the joke. Yeah. Um, because a few people have talked about this how when people try to do Letterman style humor, it doesn't quite work. And that's why the marketing that CBS did initially didn't work very well. Yep. And it's why some of the TV guide ads that NBC did were not great ads because they off were trying the to do Dave's humor with, yeah. yeah. And it was off the mark to the credit of the people making Hollywood squares in the 1980s. They got the joke with Larry Bud Melman because they decided to do this segment where they're teasing that Larry is going to be hosting the show for the full half hour. And <laughs> it's very clear that Larry has not read the, the cue cards in advance. <laughs> so they're getting that same stilted delivery and that same awkwardness. And it's Larry trying to bluff his way through the segment. Uh, and it's, it's a very funny, very entertaining first couple of minutes on that show. So uh, one of the highlights of the Hollywood squares for me was watching Larry guest host three minutes of it. <laughs> <laughs> is that out there? I don't know. Is that out there on YouTube? Can people find uh, it might be. And if it's not, I can certainly send it to you on Dropbox because I know okay. I've got it on, on uh, my cloud here. All right. Well, that's, um, that's, that's good to know. Maybe we could throw, yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe we could throw some of the, uh, even without yeah. the, the audio over top of the video here while we're doing this. Sure thing. I'm, uh, I'm expanding Adam. I'm learning how to do this sort of stuff here. Good. Where, um so is there a game show podcast and why aren't you hosting it <laughs> there's not and you know i i applaud people like you and it's it's going to sound like i'm i'm insulting the genre but it's the thing about podcasts is there are a lot of it feels like a crapshoot sometimes yeah um there are so many where it really does feel like you know it's people shouting into the void and there are yep. so many. And part of that has to do with the fact that anybody can make them. And so yep. we have this era now where anybody can do anything on discord. Anybody can do anything on Twitch. Yep. Anybody can do. Well, the problem with that is if everybody is doing it, then that leaves you trying to find an audience who wants to watch the thing that you're doing. Yeah. Um, so there's the plus and the minus of doing podcasts. The fact that you've been able to do what you've done with this podcast is extraordinary and admirable. And I don't know if I could pull off what you're doing if I tried to do a game show podcast. Okay, let me tell um, you this. You 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 absolutely could. And I'll tell you why you could. Um, because you when you described, uh, you know, nobody's doing something and shouting into the void, you described me aptly, perfectly, in fact. <laughs> uh, it was it was a perfect description of, of, of who I am. You are not that guy. You are the guy who has already written books on this who already is uh is somebody who has has infiltrated that uh that very very tight circle you know wrestling is the same way it's a closed circle and when you get invited into it 
Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, you, you have the ability to, to, to talk about things with a, with a level of expertise that is, um, you know, different and, and you have that. I like, is there another person on the planet that, that, that does this the way that you do it, that knows the things that you know, like, or do you have uh Oh yeah. You, I mean, you know? there, and I mean, that was why the internet was such a breakthrough and a mind blower for me uh, when I first got internet access in the 1990s was I think every game show fan prior to the 1990s was under the impression that they were the only one. Um, And then to discover that there are other people like you and that they all had the knowledge and they had all read up on things and remembered articles that they had read, remembered interviews and just being able to assemble that knowledge that I got from other fans who were posting on message boards or other fans who had their own websites in the 1990s. And that was really the beginning of all this was what I was able to learn from other people. And I've been fortunate enough to have mentors uh, among them. Uh, Just going back to a project that I talked about earlier, the national archives of game show history at the strong national museum of play. It's worth bringing this up right now because it does answer your question and it gives me a chance to promote something important. Um, The strong national museum of play is a wonderful, wonderful museum in Rochester, New York, uh, dedicated to the history of play in all its forms. It's the home of the national toy hall of fame. It's the home of the video game hall of fame. Uh, There are exhibits dedicated to the history of model trains, exhibits dedicated to the history of storybook characters and superhero characters uh exhibits dedicated to board games dolls uh it's just the history of play in every sense that you can use that word um and one of the things that uh they are now developing with my involvement i'm happy to say is the national archives of game show history which is going to be a museum wing that we are hoping to have up and running by 2026 that's going to be all kinds of relics from game shows, props and set pieces, um, behind the scenes documents, used question material, uh, photos, videos. Um, And part of the project is we're doing a series of oral histories, very similar to what the Television Academy has done, where we're sitting down with people who have worked on game shows in all different realms and all different jobs. And we're just interviewing them for four and five and six hours at a time to mine them for every story and every experience they ever had working. Are you doing this? Are you the one interviewing these people? I am the uh, I, I'm the credited producer of these interviews. It's a gentleman okay. named Bob Bowden. Yep. Um, Bob Bowden is one of the key answers to your question of is there anybody else who could do this? Okay. Um, Bob is a game show super fan going way way back. Uh, he was an executive at CBS in the 1980s, um, who was involved in supervising all the taping of game shows that happened at CBS in the 1980s. He was the first uh, director of programming, I believe, for Game Show Network. He helped launch Game Show Network when. when uh, went on the air in 1994 mm-hmm. and he's also been involved in producing game shows he's also been involved in running game shows um and he has i would say not even exaggerating i would say 10 times the stuff that you see back here bob has in his wow bob has this incredible office in his home that's just the entire history of game shows crammed into uh a dozen bookcases um and you two work well together yeah we sometimes we, when you get two uber you know no, uber we get a, we get along but i'd love to hear that you guys we get along fabulously and that's because great. bob has worked directly in the industry and because people yeah. who have worked with him uh have liked him uh bob mm-hmm. has had access to some pretty neat stuff bob has 
Bob has one of the cubicles from Hollywood Squares crammed into this room of his house. He has the (laughs) face-off podium from Family Feud. He has one of the first pricing games from The Price is Right in his... Because when they threw it away in 1986, Bob said, well, wait a minute, if you're getting rid of it, can I just take it home? So he has... uh, If you watch the first episode of The Price is Right, the any number board, Bob has that in his... uh, And he has... (laughs) And I love saying this because it sounds... It sounds so ridiculous, but he has this. Bob has the J from the 1990s Jeopardy logo. Yes. (laughs) He has that in his home. But it's just, it's this incredible, beautiful, wonderful, fun-to-dig-through labyrinth of game show history. Mm -hmm. Uh, And all of that stuff is eventually going to go to the museum, but Bob has all that stuff in his home, and he's happy to give tours to anybody who's never seen it before. But it's just, it's mind-blowing to see all the stuff he has in one place. He's he's here in uh, Los Angeles. He's in the Van Nuys area. Uh, And he's just been actively working in the game show business for as long as I've been alive and slightly longer. Um, He... He was one of the contestants for Alex Trebek's rehearsal of the first game of Jeopardy he ever hosted. So that's how far back that's how far back Bob goes. Bob um, must have been so happy because um, I've gotten this I've gotten this a little bit from some of the Letterman staffers. Yeah, um, and I mean I'm 47 at the time of this recording, uh, but I've had I've had some people talk about how excited they are to see somebody younger. Uh, who is kind of if there's a baton to take, I don't know, or if if, if it's a, if we're creating them, I'm not sure. But 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 the enthusiasm when you see Bob must be very stoked that somebody of your generation is uh, going as deep. Well, as yeah, you are. and I I mean I mean I'll tell you what I'm I'm only 40 right now, but I've already oh my god I've got the problem my parents have where they forget their age. I'm 41 now. Okay. <laughs> Yes, I've reached. You've just seen a milestone moment. This is the first time in my life that I've forgotten my age. Um, <laughs> I'm 41 now, and I just had my exp- this experience at my age because uh, a few months ago, I got a chance to meet a game show fan named Jacob. Jacob is 12 years old. Yep. And Jacob, I, I, I will be bold enough to say in the year 2024, Jacob has more functional knowledge of the history of What's My Line than any other 12-year-old in America. <laughs> What's my line? This classic game show on CBS from 1950 wow. to 1967. And Jacob at age 12 just knows this show and its history backwards and forwards and knows everything else about old classic game shows. I mean, it, it got it got to a point the first time I met him where I was looking for stuff to stump him or surprise him. And it, nothing I said made him blink. Jacob knows this stuff. And so it's really exciting at age 12 to, see, you know, to look at this kid and realize, oh, cool, you're going to be who I work for when I'm 70. Uh <laughs> So I was happy to meet him and I'm, I'm excited to see what he ends up doing with his life. But yeah, it's, I'm already having that experience that you're talking about as Bob sees me, I'm seeing it with youngins. <laughs> you, uh, you bring up something very interesting that he would know that uh, from a game show that's so old, you think, okay, well, yeah, YouTube and footage and, and all this sort of stuff. He has, uh, the internet is a, is a beautiful, uh, you know, condensed periodical. And if you just go through that periodical, you'll see it all. That being said though, I mean, I think about, um, well, this happened with, uh, you know, with Dick Cavett. It ha- happened with Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson's mm-hmm. first uh, season of the of the Tonight Show, uh, first couple seasons maybe even, lost because they taped yeah. over this stuff. Uh, there must be a, a plethora of that in the game show world where, where, where there are original episodes that just were lost because of short-sightedness and taping over things, right? Oh, plenty. And I mean, uh, longer than I think even the most devoted fans would realize. Um, like, for example, a friend of mine and, we're, and I were just talking about a show from the 1980s called Sale of the Century. 
Yeah, oh, and I Sale love Sale of the Century. I Sale of the Century show. ran for about six and a half years, and of that six and a half years, maybe two years are accounted for on video because uh, they just <laughs> even even by the 1980s, nobody appreciated the aftermarket for game show reruns. So NBC wasn't saving the tapes for most of the run, yep. um, and it's it was the same thing across all the networks. Mark Goodson was going to sell reruns of the 70s version of Password after that show got canceled and didn't find out until he began putting these plans in place that ABC had been erasing the tapes for the last four years. He didn't realize that. Um, there were some instances where we got lucky. Like uh, there's, uh, We were just talking about What's My Line, which ran for 17 years. And there was a period of two years where CBS was erasing that show. And then Goodson Todman had to run in and say, stop erasing them. We're going to save those episodes. And they did. And so we still have most of What's My Line. Um, and there are, there are outliers and there are shows that, are surprisingly still very, very intact. Um, about 20 years ago, um, I believe they were searching for Dark Shadows. Somebody was looking for the soap opera Dark Shadows in yep. a vault, and they accidentally found 2,000 episodes of the original Hollywood Squares from the 70s. Oh, no kidding! Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> Which were thought to be erased. Yeah. Um, same thing happened with The Joker's Wild. I think so. something else was happening where they were looking for another show in the vault, and they found 500 episodes of The Joker's Wild. Um, so every now and then, these treasures get unearthed where it just shows that people have lost track of what's in the vault. Mm -hmm. Um there's a show from the 1970s. Alex Trebek's first hit game show was called High Rollers and was thought for years and years and years to have been erased. And I found out from somebody who's in a position to know that they're very, very sure that MGM has the entire run of High Rollers, Alex Trebek's first game show, which would span about two years. And they think what's happened is MGM has just kind of lost track of where in the vault or in which <laughs> vault they're keeping it. But they said, we're, we're certain that the tapes are there, but we just, we're not sure where there is. We, they've forgotten where the tapes are. And in some cases that's uh, Bob Barker's other hit game show. Uh, Bob Barker's entire career over 50 years was basically two shows. He had the prices right for 35 years. And then for 15 years, he was hosting Truth or Consequences. Yep. And Truth or Consequences was accounted for. And then there was a snafu when they were moving from one office to the other. And now nobody's sure where the Truth or Consequences tapes are. So... There's uh, there's treasure everywhere, but there's also we don't know for sure what's lost and what's just been forgotten about. And we're hoping that there's a lot of stuff that's just been forgotten about. Um, but even then, the next trick, even if you unearth something, the next trick is so many of these things are on obsolete format. Yeah. And unfortunately, the bad news about television is it's a business. So the next step is you have to convince somebody that it's worth the trouble of the converting money. these shows. Yep. Yeah. Spending the money to convert the tapes. Um, there's a show from the 1960s called you don't say, which ran for six and a half years. And I only just learned recently, all of that still exists. All six and a half years of you don't say still exists. And the reason it still exists was because it was owned by Desilu and Lucille Ball was fierce about hanging on to tapes. Um, so she made sure all of that was accounted for, but now the next hurdle is Okay convince somebody that these episodes of you don't say spanning six and a half years are worth salvaging. Yeah, convince them to spend the money on it. And that's a roadblock. A lot of the time is there are all these shows that still exist, but do you want to do something with that? Yeah. What's the um, application other than yeah. preservation and other than, you know, again, you'd think that you'd think with the, with the benefit of hindsight, knowing that there is a reason that may not be have revealed itself yet, but yeah. it's still probably worth, 
you know, holding on to not, uh, you know, not getting rid of it, but yeah. And that, I mean, that, that is, that's one of the things that makes you appreciate the shows that were salvaged was somebody somewhere in the 1950s was saying, you know, let's go ahead and hang on to, I've got a secret. Let's not throw these away. Let's go ahead and hang on a password. Let's not throw that away. And so we have enough. There's, we certainly have enough to sustain a TV channel now, uh, multiples. Um, so enough people saw foresight that you can't grieve the lost stuff too much, but there is, there is stuff that you look back on and you're curious and you think, oh, you know, it would have been nice to see this. It would have been nice to see that celebrity on that game show or see how this game was played. But yeah, I mean, we certainly we live in a time where content is, is you know, they tell us content is everything and yeah and, and whatnot. It, it just it you'd you'd think that there would be some sort of a, a play there, but we're in such a time where everything is such short term thinking. Yeah, you know, we got to make not sure just short term thinking, but also, and this was something that I've learned from talking to Bob Bowden about the way that the reason so many game shows got erased was because a lot of the people in charge of making that kind of decision didn't understand the appeal of a game show. Mm -hmm. um, the excuse given for erasing game shows so much was the executive would say, "Well, there's no reason to watch a game show again because you know who's going to win," mm -hmm. and as Bob has very wisely explained when he's had to talk about this is you're not exactly watching a game show to see who the winner is. You're watching a game show to see the quality of the game. You're watching yeah. a game to see, you know, you're watching the game to see how the celebrities interact with the contestants and see how the contestants interact with the host. You're watching for the quality of the thing. You're not watching it for the result as no. strange and as counterintuitive as, the, as that sounds. You're really not watching a game show to see who wins. Uh, no. That's, that's kind of the icing on the cake, but it's not the main thing that's bringing you to the show. Yep. If I see yeah. an old, an old school uh, price is right. Price is right. It's probably, if I had to, if I had to say the one that was nestled closest to my nostalgic heart, yeah. and I mean, I mean, how many times have we heard somebody say, "Yeah, I was homesick from school, so I could watch The Price Is Right," yeah. or, 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 or that's what I did when I was, uh, you know, homesick from school. Um, you know, that's the one that's probably nestled really close to my nostalgic heart yeah. uh, when it comes to game shows. I look back and watch those shows. Um, if I see one or I see footage of one, and to me, it's the time capsule. It's, it's the, time capsule. Yeah. It's, it's the price. The, 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 you know, the old school wheel of fortunes are like this too. The old school wheel of fortunes that, um, 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 you, you didn't win money. You won money towards, you know, there's a living room and you got to pick yeah. the, the items out of the living room. They, and there are some people that are like, what are you talking about? No, that's how wheel of fortune was at first. They would, they would have all these, uh, these, these rooms filled with prizes with a, with a monetary amount on there. Oh boy. What do you have there? <laughs> what do you have there, Adam? I have the famous, <laughs> The famous Wheel of Fortune ceramic Dalmatian, again, to contextualize the point you're making, <laughs> and it sounds absolutely alien to people who didn't see it before, because uh, I went home and visited my family for Christmas, and another friend of mine did the same thing. We would we showed each other Wheel of Fortune from the 1980s just to show our younger relatives this is what they used to do on Wheel yes. of Fortune, yes. and they would have these boutiques all over the stage with different yeah. prizes in the boutiques. Okay, you won three thousand dollars by solving that puzzle. Go spend your three thousand dollars. Yep. And you would have the contestants <laughs> facing this boutique of merchandise. And okay, for seven hundred ninety-nine dollars, I'll buy the console TV. Uh, for twelve hundred dollars, I'll buy the brass coffee table. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah. So. <laughs> and and that's but watching them now. Yeah. You get a sense of what style was then, like what the contestants are wearing. 
You know, you get a, uh, you get a sense of it's a it's a beautiful time capsule. And you get I, a sense of what style was. You get a sense of what people valued because of the prize that they're interested in and what they're invested in. And also the game material. The game material can be an interesting time time capsule because you can see what's relevant to uh, that era. What was relevant. You know, if it's a history category, you can see stuff that you did learn in school decades later and it's still being taught. But also there are certain things that just ended up not mattering that much so they slipped through the cracks of history. I don't even remember the name now, but I just remember watching a 1970s Wheel of Fortune. The category was person. And it was a name that I had never heard in my life. And I just, I went on Google and did a Google search for the, the name. And it was somebody who was making a lot of news in that moment, who was very widely known in 1978 and got their 50, I think, I think some kind of athlete, but it was somebody whose name was known in 1978 and then their sports career ended and yep. they went into that dustbin of history. So you're seeing this name that has no meaning to you watching it <laughs> in the year 2024. And it's, it, it was somebody relevant enough to be a puzzle on wheel of fortune back then. And they solved it. They solved yeah. it. They knew who it yeah. was. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, um, let's go with announcers for a second here too. Yeah. Uh, Alan Coulter, Bill Wendell, did they ever have any game show experience? Oh yeah. Of? A lot. Uh, Bill Wendell, yeah. uh, not just as an announcer, but as a host, uh, Bill was one of the hosts of Tic Tac Doe. Um, no kidding. Bill, yeah. Bill hosted Tic-Tac-Doe so for a came year. after Bill? Wink came after Bill. Uh, Tic-Tac-Doe had started in the 1950s on NBC, and it was one of the game shows uh, involved in the quiz show scandal. And Tic-Tac-Doe had an interesting history in the quiz show scandal, because this is what happened, and this is how Bill ended up being the host. Tic-Tac-Doe airs on NBC, and it's a hit show for NBC. And then they find out it's rigged. Yep. And the host of the show was Jack Berry, who was also the producer, and he was the host and producer of 21, which was one of the big notorious that, shows from that, that quiz the, show yeah, scandal. Yeah, exactly. And basically, NBC seized control of all their shows uh, from Berry and Enright and just kind of fired Berry and Enright while hanging on to the rights of their shows. And so 21 gets canceled, but Tic-Tac-Doe, NBC decides to salvage. They decide, okay, we're going to keep Tic-Tac-Doe on the air, but we're going to play it legitimately. Yep. Um, and that was when Bill Wendell became the host. So Bill Wendell hosted the show at a point when they stopped rigging it and started playing it as a little legitimate show. Right. Now, here's the funny thing about what happened to Tic-Tac-Doe after they stopped rigging the show. Rigging a game show involves doing some sleight of hand with the show's prize budget. Um, because the way the old Tic-Tac-Doe worked was after you won the game, you had to decide if you were willing to to risk your winnings by playing another challenger. Yes. And if the challenger won the next game, their winnings were deducted from what the champion had won. And so you could opt to not play tic-tac-doe anymore, or you could yep. play on and uh, risk your winnings against another opponent. So what would happen was whenever they decided they wanted to have a champion go on a big run, they would have a string of games where the challenger won over and over and over again. And that way they were paying out very little money because that money kept getting deducted from the champion's winnings. Right. So you'd have a champion who only won $200 and then a champion who only won $300 and a champion who only won $100 and then a champion who was wiped out. And then after you built up a surplus <laughs> of money in the prize budget, then you would put on your charismatic, bring handsome, the stud on. Comes, bring the yeah. stud on yeah. and have them go on a big game run and won $12,000 because you would saved up $12,000 from your prize budget. That's well, so the problem with tic-tac-doe is because of a rule that they had in the game that the champion always goes first. And because you're playing tic-tac-toe, yep. the champion has a built-in advantage to that game. Massive. So once they began playing tic-tac-doe legitimately, the show just hemorrhaged money for NBC because... <laughs> 
now you had a genuinely good champion who could not be defeated by anybody. <laughs> and once you've amassed twelve thousand dollars, okay, do you want to play? Do you want to risk your twelve thousand dollars and possibly lose four hundred dollars to your next opponent? Not yeah, sure. Happen. Okay, fine, fine. So yeah. Yeah. you had all these yeah. champions go on these yeah. massive runs, and yeah. NBC lost a fortune <laughs> doing tic tac toe and playing it legitimately. Oh, that's uh, hilarious. <laughs> so, how long would Wendell have been there? A couple of years. Bill Wendell hosted it for about a year and a half, yeah. uh, and Bill uh, was also an NBC staff announcer. He was not yes. necessarily the guy that you hired to be an announcer, but he was a guy that got assigned to whatever shows were taping at NBC. Yeah. And so you hear Bill Wendell announcing a lot of the shows, not just on NBC, but in the NBC studios. So like, for example, the seventies version of to tell the truth was a syndicated show, but they taped in studio six a of all places. Yep. And so Bill Wendell is the announcer for the shows taping in studio six a, because he's the guy assigned to the show that day. Yep. And then eventually Bill is not announcing to tell the truth anymore. So who do they hire to replace Bill Wendell as the announcer to tell the truth? Alan Coulter. Uh, Alan was on his way actually to be, uh, to being a real game show guy. Alan announced a lot of game shows in the 1970s. He had a good look. If you get a chance to look at Alan in the 1970s, he's a good looking guy. Absolutely. Again, Classically, a classic good looking guy. Good looking like, guy. Like with he could have been a movie great, star in the 50s almost. Like he just. Good looking guy with a great voice and yeah. had command of the game. He hosted yeah. several unaired game show pilots, and I've had a chance yeah. to screen him. And, you know, Alan is a pretty good host. But what Alan said years after the fact was he got out of the game show business because there are these contracts that you're signed to if you host a game show pilot. And basically what it does is it locks you down to that game show pilot. And you may have to wait a year and a half to see if NBC is going to buy that game show pilot. Yeah. And while you're waiting that year and a half, you are not allowed to accept another gig from a game show. So yeah. your career can be kind of put on ice if you commit yourself to game shows. So Alan decided early in his career, I'm not going to be a game show guy. I'm going to do commercials and voiceovers because yeah. you have a little more flexibility and a little more freedom. So Alan left game shows behind and I understand his reason for doing that, but Alan could have made a career out of game shows and looked like he was going to for a while and was pretty solid at it. Absolutely. He would have been incredible at that. Uh, yeah. No question. Um, not, you know, again, tangentially related to Letterman, but you think about Saturday Night Live, Don Pardo also uh, <laughs> game show, game show stuff, not just so in Weird Al songs either. Oh yeah, the it, okay. And fun fact, going back to uh, my friend Bob, uh, yeah. who uh, has the massive collection of game show stuff. Bob was hired to write the script for Don Pardo's announcing copy in that song. Are you kidding me? Like they, Weird Al had the gist of what he wanted Don Pardo to do, but he hadn't actually written it. So uh, Bob became known to Weird Al somehow. Bob, Bob's <laughs> thing was, he was a tape collector at a time when tape collecting wasn't a thing yet because it was late 70s early 1980s so bob bought one of the first vcrs on the market and just recorded everything and collected videotapes and everything and when weird al yankovic decided to do this music video i lost on jeopardy they needed a reference tape for what the jeopardy set looked like in the 1970s and somehow they found it. out somehow they found out that bob had a copy of an episode of jeopardy from the 1970s so they got that copy from bob and Weird Al hadn't been given much of a video, uh, budget for the video, so he said, "I can't pay you much. What would you t what would you take for the video?" And Bob says, "Well, rather than paying me, can I just be in the video?" And Weird Al said, "Yes." So, my friend Bob uh, plays the role of a stagehand in this music video for "I Lost on Jeopardy," and that was his reward for supplying the reference tape for building the set and for writing Don Pardo's copy. Um, but yeah, Don Pardo had been the voice <laughs> of the original Price is Right with Bill Cullen when it was on NBC. Um, and uh, had uh, he had been the voice of Mr. Mischief, which was this giant wall-mounted puppet on a show called Choose Up Sides, which was 
<laughs> kind of a children's version of Beat the Clock, and it holds the distinction of being part of the first Saturday morning kids lineup. NBC was the first network to do uh, to decide, okay, Saturday morning is going to be kids' time, yep. and we're going to do a whole pro pro programming block for just kids. Yep. And Choose Up Sides was part of that, and Don Pardo was the voice of Mr. Mischief, who announced to the kids what their penalty stunt was for blowing it on the first stunt on Choose Up Sides. Um, and he would interact with Gene Rayburn, who was the host of the show, and they would banter back and forth. Um, so Don Pardo had a long career in game shows. Um, I'm unfortunately, I have to say, I was not able to interview him for any of my books while I was alive. I was, I certainly attempted because I got my hands on his phone number, and I called him on the phone, and it was the most awkward sixty seconds I've ever spent on the phone in my life because Don. Don, to the very end, managed to perform on Saturday Night Live, but let's not lose sight of the fact that this was a guy in his upper 90s. Absolutely. So I had to call this guy on the phone and, hi, my name is Adam Needif. I'm an author writing a book about Bill Cullen. What? Yeah. I said, my name is Adam Needif, <laughs> and I'm writing a book about the history of game shows. I'm writing a book about Bill Cullen. I was wondering if I could interview you about this book. No! And he hangs <laughs> up the phone. <laughs> So those were the two words that Don Pardo said to me on the phone. <laughs> what? No. Okay. I had a I had a I had a similar experience with Hal uh, with Hal Hal Gurney. Um, <laughs> and 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 I knew I would because there's there, there's also some eccentricity there as well. And and uh, but I still cherish that as I'm sure you cherish the call yeah. with Don. Oh yeah, yeah. Talking about it today. That's uh. Yeah, that, that that's something you can bring up on a first date. Uh, yeah, um, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we could do this. So we could do this all day. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna just tease because we're not gonna we can't do it today. But but yeah. we could do this all day. I'm just gonna tease to everybody. One of the things that uh, that Adam and I are going to do at some point. Um, we're gonna you know show. There's oh look at this. <laughs> there he is. There's Calvert right there. The very very first shot. And here's the like literally it's five five hundred and forty, you said? Five hundred and forty. Something like that, yeah. You mm -hmm. know, so here's the uh the montage, the final montage of Late Show with David Letterman, broken down frame by frame. And um boy oh boy, was this a is this ever a masterpiece? So so there there we go. We could we could do that, but we're not gonna do that today. Uh we're gonna do that another day. You're coming back because you yes. and I are good at this. This I've is fun. Yeah, you're yeah, I can tell. Uh, but I do want to get into something because this is something that the late Le Letterman would always do, of course, uh, to parody game shows. They, they, they did such a good job on late show and late night uh, parodying game shows and, and and some of the little eccentricities that they had. The idea of the home game. Um, <laughs> there's so many behind you that I have to I have to ask a little bit about that. Sure. Um, the, the, you know, you would see this at the end of a game show in the you know growing up, and I don't know how far back it went but i do know that i became aware of it immediately watching certain game shows that people would go home with the home version of whatever show that they were they were a part of <laughs> how many of these games are good and how many of them like did any of them ever get outside of you know are these like really really big collectors items because they never made it to toys r us they never made it to these places or or, or are these things that, that were available? Could you have written in and gotten a version of these? Uh, oh yeah, no, these were all they were all commercially sold. Uh, okay. They promoted them on the show, but yeah, you could absolutely go to a department store. Um, 
uh, the sole reason that I set up my eBay account years and years ago was to buy <laughs> Deluxe Wheel of Fortune, which is over there. Um, <laughs> because the reason it's Deluxe Wheel of Fortune, if you bought the regular Wheel of Fortune home game, yep. the wheel was a cardboard spinner with the plastic arrow in the middle that you flicked. Okay. Deluxe Wheel of Fortune, the extra feature there is they it's a plastic wheel they actually built a wheel for that home game yeah um and i was i I, and it's it was the thing that my parents wouldn't get me when we went to kmart or whatever so (laughs) just to stick it to my mom and dad i had to make sure that i got it as soon as i was an adult must scratch that itch yeah and then i upgraded that even further this is something i've shared on social media for a few times but just to show everybody that i'm not making this up this is how obsessed I, i am uh i don't know how well you can see that but we can tell it's a wheel of fortune wheel that's we can tell that uh, a gentleman in upstate New York built this uh, wow. and shipped it over to me. I have, it's about two feet wide, but it's an actual honest to God wheel of fortune. And whenever wow. I have people over here for game nights, people who come over to my apartment know that they are playing wheel of fortune. And oh, that use, is fantastic. We use an actual wheel for wheel of fortune because I had to have that thing. It's, and you have a wheel of fortune dust cover for it. Like it's an actual yes. set piece. And it's just, <laughs> that is, that is pro Absolutely. my friend. But yeah, I've, I've been collecting these home games for years and years. Um, the Jeopardy home games generally play very well. Password is magnificent. Password is great. Yeah. Uh, the Concentration games are some of the best home games ever released and some of the best-selling home games ever released. Um, that's the game with the Rebus puzzles. Yeah. Um, the game shows that were based on shows with celebrity panels are hard ones to recreate for home because so much of the appeal is watching the celebrities banter back and forth. I'll, I'll, one of the worst ones ever made is the home version of Match Game because the home version of Match Game is you have a you have a cardboard sheet with your celebrity panel on it. Yep. And then you read the question to your contestant and the contestant gives an answer and the game sheet has what each of the cardboard celebrities said. So after your so after your contestant is given the answer, you say, "Well, Norm said apple, Betty said orange, Stan said apple, Janice said grapes," and you just go through one by one and decide, and you lose all of the flavor of match games. So the key to match game is to just ignore the home game and use the question book, and invite six friends over and have them be your celebrity panel and actually play a match game. I got um, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hollywood Squares. I figured out how to make the Hollywood Squares home game because the same thing. It's you have nine cartoon celebrities and you're yep. just reading this book with what the celebrities say. My way of doing the Hollywood Squares home game is I always assign one of the celebrities to a party guest. And yep. I have my I have people at my parties playing the celebrities in the Hollywood Squares home game, and that's how we make it work. So Hollywood Squares you can make work, but the trick is you have to have at least ten friends. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there's your caveat. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Australian Price is Right game is one of the most interesting games in my collection because of the approach that they took to it. Normally, when you have a game show where prizes are given away, yeah. and you've got to recreate that for a home game. What you have is a deck of playing cards, and your deck of playing cards is Vacation to Rio de Janeiro. A new car. car yeah. yeah, yeah dishwasher. Yeah. And yeah. that's your deck of cards. The price is right from Australia. The home game doesn't have any of that. What the instructions tell you to do is it gives you instructions about gifts to buy at small shops and use those as your prizes. So you're playing the prices right for like stationary sets, pens and pencils, a bottle of wine. The idea is the the home game basically tells you go out and buy a hundred dollars worth of stuff and give it as gifts to your friends as you're playing the home game. That's fantastic. It's a fun thing to do around Christmas time. If you ever want to do that with the prices right home game from Australia. But yeah, um, I began collecting these home games 
uh, around the time I was in college, the collection really began taking off actually at the start of the pandemic. Uh, here's what I did uh, when the pandemic started. Basically to justify the fact that I had thrown so much money away on all these things. Yeah. And because all of us were staying inside with no social outlet, I just began gathering people up from my Facebook friends list. And I said, okay, at six o'clock, we're going to have a Zoom meeting and we're going to play the the Card Sharks home game. And I set up the camera and what this was every night, every weeknight uh, throughout the pandemic, I would just set up a game show home game on a table in front of me. I would fix a camera on the table yep. and we would play that home game over Zoom with my friends on Zoom as the contestants. And I would just be manipulating the cards or spitting the wheel or whatever we needed for the game. And that was how we all stayed sane during the pandemic. <laughs> so this, as strange as it sounds and as impossible as this is to believe, what you're seeing behind me was how I survived a year and a half. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. That's precious. Um, are there any, uh, you know, because I've got the collector bug in me too. Um, are there any games, uh, you know, home versions of game show games that are sought after in the collector's world? Like, are there any that like, yeah, okay, the, there's um, our, there's our, uh, there's our white whale up there. One of the white whales. And actually, <laughs> um, I was fortunate enough to do something not terribly legal, but uh, just to explain the story, um, CBS uh, screened a game show pilot in 1988 called Top Secret okay. uh, that was created and hosted by Wink Martindale. Wink has also created game shows in addition to hosting them, and he developed this format called Top Secret and showed it to CBS. And CBS came very, very close to putting it on the air before changing their minds. But because they looked really, really close to putting this thing on the air, Wink went ahead and closed a deal with Parker Brothers to make a home game. Oh, so Parker <laughs> Brothers began making a home game and then CBS decided, OK, we're not going to put Top Secret on the air. We're going to revive Family Feud and we're going to put that on the air instead. Okay. So they recalled the home game. So it was only on the market for a very brief period. And it was a home version of a show that nobody in America had seen. So very few of these home games were purchased. My friend Bob, again, going to bring him up. <laughs> had a copy of the Top Secret home games. He had one of the only ones that came out there. Yep. Um, in fact, to give you an idea of how rare this home game was, because I learned this story later, Wink had to pay for his copy. Wink got a copy years <laughs> later on eBay. He didn't even have a copy. Yeah. Um, but Bob had a copy of the Top Secret home game, and Bob was boxing it up and shipping it off to Rochester as part of this museum exhibit we're working on. And I just very politely said to him, Bob, before you send off that copy of Top Secret to the museum... Can I borrow it for just one week? <laughs> and Bob trusted me, so he said, okay, you can have it for one week. So Get what I scanner, did was boys. I perfected the art of putting things into a scanner without looking at them. This is how I was using my scanner for the entire week. I was feeding the cards in there without <laughs> looking at them. And I made this completely illegal duplicate of the top secret home game. Oh, that's uh, fantastic. That's, yeah. Um, but it has uh, all the questions, all the clue cards, all the play money. Uh, yeah. I, I went ahead and copied the entire home game. So I have this very unethically made copy of the top secret home game. So if anyone wants to come over to my place and play this unsold game show pilot from 1988, you are welcome to come <laughs> over to my place and we'll play top secret for the night. Um, yeah. Oh, here's a, here's a weird one. Uh, well, actually it's not weird. It won't be weird for you. The audience might think it's weird. Have you had any John Michael Higgins encounters? <laughs> uh, I have, uh, I was a question researcher for a show that John has, uh, hosted i was the question researcher for the first season of the new version of split second on game show network i've actually not met the man face to face okay um i really i have very few letterman related encounters in my credit i i had a chance <laughs> to meet i i met joe fury 
twice in my life. Cool. Um, and Joe was a very nice guy, very sweet guy, uh, and very, very friendly and very welcoming to me at a time when I was a bumpkin and I had just come out here for the first time. Yeah. Um, but I, unless I'm forgetting something, and I'll feel really bad if I'm forgetting somebody, but that's really the only Letterman connection that I've made in my life. Yeah, yeah. I would love to have John on this show, obviously, because, you know, uh, you know, actor, uh, good at obviously, uh, inf- famously or infamously, depending on your, your point yeah. of view, played David Letterman in the movie The Late Shift. Now, of course, uh, you know, I would say big, big in the game show world, as far as I know. Yeah, you know, he, a yeah. Uh, very unexpected career turn for him, but he yeah. hosted a show called America Says for Game Show Network, which was a pretty big hit. And I, I think beyond what Game Show Network was even expecting for it. And has turned out to be pretty darn good at this and has uh, now has another hit on his hands with Split Second, which uh, just finished production on their second season. Um, but yeah, a, a multi-talented guy, a very entertaining actor who just, he happens to have that knack for interacting with people and for uh, keeping a game show moving. Um, he's yeah. been a real gift to the game show world. Um, and I enjoyed his performance in, in The Late Shift. One of my big problems with a lot of based on a true story things, mm-hmm. and The Late Shift is certainly guilty of this, a lot of them merit miniseries more than they merit uh movie treatment and really there's a lot of stuff going on in the late shift that that movie understandably had to leave out but makes for such an interesting story dave and jay's whole backstory with knowing each other back in the 1970s i think makes this a much more interesting story that you i think there's a lot of drama there that didn't get tapped into with these guys who really helped each other and mutually mentored each other at a time when both of them were just coming up. Yes. And then suddenly they get ripped apart by this argument over who gets to host an hour of TV a night. Um, that's something that the movie doesn't really explore and it should have been. And we missed something that way. I could not agree more. And I think that we have, you know, where you look at where television broadcasting is going, um, you know, obviously pros and cons to everything, but I could not agree more with what you just said. You know, the, the, the idea of, um, you know, and we, and we sort of got this from the Brits a little bit, how, 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 you know, they didn't have seasons, they had series and it was only six, six shows per, and many of them had a beginning, a middle and an end. Now we're seeing that when you look at some of these, uh, different, uh, you know, Netflix treatments or things where there is six episodes to do something like I think about the history of the comedy store, uh, that, that, that phenomenal, phenomenal documentary that came out, I think it was on Showtime a couple of years ago. And, 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 and it told the, the story of the comedy store. Um, it did such a good job of going through all the eras of comics that have gone through that place and and whatnot. I think yeah. you're exactly right. The late shift, you know, back when it came out, um, we didn't really have that as as an option for how series. There was the miniseries, but it, yeah. it it's different than it is now. Right. Um, if there was a, a game show that you would love to see get you know, the docu-series type treatment, if there was a story within game shows, uh, what, what what would that be? Is there one or two of them that kind of come to the top of your mind that these are stories that... You that... know, I, I, I will say to their credit, when E... When E! True Hollywood Story was a thing, they did several game show episodes and they did some very comprehensive deep dives that gave a lot of good consideration and gave the shows their day in court and covered a lot of information. They did some fantastic sh- uh, episodes on the history of uh, Jeopardy and Hollywood Squares and Family Feud. Uh, and to name drop him again, Bob Bowden, uh, who I'm working with on the National Archives of Game Show History at the Strong National Museum of Play. Uh, Bob oversaw production on a documentary called Big Bucks, The Press Your Luck Scandal uh, about a famous incident on Press Your Luck, the Big Bucks No Whammies game show where a contestant 
solved the game board essentially and figured out that the light that appeared to be flashing around the board randomly was not actually random and that you could predict where that light would stop. And he, <laughs> he used it to <laughs> collect $110,000 in a single playing of the game. And that's uh, an extraordinary yeah. documentary. Um, so the biggies have been covered. Um, and there's uh, right now Jeopardy is actually doing their own in-house podcast yeah. about the history of Jeopardy. And that's been wonderful. So a lot of this ground is being covered um that really wasn't explored in any big way before um i would like to see if i had my brothers i'd like to do a a, a mini series version of one of the books that i've written game shows faq i talked about how that was kind of my from beginning to now linear history of the game show genre and there are so many little steps along the way about how we got this kind of programming and how this kind of show became popular and that led to that and that led to that and you don't really get a feel for that when you're examining one show at a time so i would love to do just a linear history of game shows um oh, i want you to do it i hope you do do it i, I think so. you'd be i think you'd be incredible at it your communication skills are are superior your your knowledge clearly uh, you've written a book about it already, you know, and it's it's yeah. it's, it's funny, you know. Talk, we talked to Bill Carter last week, actually, um, and and uh, you know he did the story of late. I mean, of course, Late Shift, uh, the War for Late Night, and then they had the movie, which he wrote. That the CNN a few years ago uh, put out the story of Late Night, and it was fantastic. It was really good, you know, five episodes, good overview stuff, like really good overview. But for those who want to do the deep dive, he also had the the companion podcast, you know, behind the desk. And, and, um, you know, that could, they gave, they had more room to stretch out some of the, uh, this, the, the, the anecdotes that weren't necessarily ready for the, for the, for the CNN treatment, but yeah. fascinating nonetheless. I, man, I know how busy you are. Like I get how busy you are. You're about to go on a big, your, your week's about to get really busy, right? What do well, you I mean, I'm, week? I'm working on a show right now, um, that I'm not sure I can say yet, oh, but I, 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 okay. I, I, I'm, I'm working on a show right now that's going to start production, uh, in late March, early April. Um, so I just a busy week ahead of me putting together game material for that, because like I said, it's, that's how game shows operate now is you do these weeks and weeks of pre-production leading into actually taping the show. Yeah. Um, so I'm just staying very busy there. And also the oral history project that I talked about earlier, uh, we're going to be shooting an interview with Shelly Herman, the writer that I mentioned earlier, we're going to be talking to her. And Shelly actually has a book out now called My Peacock Tale about her uh, her years as an NBC page. And it's a oh. wonderful memoir about her time working at the NBC Burbank complex during the 1970s uh, and the celebrities that she crossed paths with during those years. Yeah, there, uh, there's a there's a podcast. We had um, Janice Panino, who was uh, the HR uh, for Worldwide Pants, but she started heading up by in NBC. She headed up the NBC Page program, and and um, uh, she was on a. There's a podcast devoted to these pages and yeah. and some of the stories that these pages have, and it's fascinating. It's really really uh, really great. Um, but yeah, I see I see there being something here. If you have the uh, if you have the desire for it, I sure see it. And and Adam, you're you're fantastic at this. How can people find you? What's the best way to uh, uh, like plug some of your books, your projects that people yeah, can go buy? Um, um, my books are uh, my books are available uh, direct from publisher BearManorMedia.com. B e a r m a n o r Media.com. Bear Manor Media. Yep. Uh, also, my books are available at uh, Amazon and uh, on Barnes and Noble's website. Those are the uh, probably the three best places to find my books. Um, also, I'm on Facebook. My page is author Adam Needif. Uh, N-E-D-E-F-F. -F. Um, 
and I try to post some things there, basically just to remind people that I'm alive and to remind people to buy my books. So be sure to check that out. And I try to post some fun stuff there every now and then. Uh, and also, I understand I'll be appearing on the Letterman podcast here in the near future for a second appearance. So be <laughs> sure to find be. me on that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're going to do like the next time you come on, we've set the table perfectly. Um, yeah, there they are. Okay. So let's show them. No, show them a little closer to camera. Let's oh, show sure, a sure, sure. Closer to camera, what yeah. You did. So like, Game Shows awesome. FAQ, that's one of them. Uh, there you go. That's the, the general perfect, history of game shows that I was talking about. Perfect title. Gong book, This Book the is the new one. Uh, that's uh, the runaway bestseller. Uh, <laughs> Alan Ludden, the gentleman that we talked about earlier, who was responsible for uh, helping Dave get his start. A uh, book about him. Yep. Um, and the last photo ever taken of Betty White, you can see that book visible in front of her. So that appears to be what Betty wow. was doing on the last day of her life. So that means a lot. Dennis James, who was the first game show host on network television, as well as the first pro wrestling commentator on television. That's a book that you may you may want to check out. Yeah, like, definitely. Definitely. The Matchless Gene Rayburn. That's another one uh, worth looking into. Uh, and then Quizmaster, my biography of Bill Cullen, but there's a second edition of this on the way. So we, just a heads up, if you're thinking about buying it, you may want to hold off for a few months because I'm working on a second edition of it. So and supplemental material included yes. in that? Oh, mm -hmm. that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, who's who's your, do you have a top five all-time game show hosts? Uh Really, it, it sounds like an evasive answer, but really the people that yeah. I wrote books about, because that's the whole reason that I wanted to write books about them. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, Bill Cullen, Dennis James, Gene Rayburn, um, Alan Ludden, Monty Hall. Those are my tops. Yeah. Monty Hall is the, probably the closest to the the modern host, I guess, if you're if you're a child of the 80s and, and that's oh, yeah. all you remember. I guess that's the closest one to, you know, the uh, the John Davidson's Wink Martindale's of the world, the, the people like that. Or I guess Wink's been around. Wink's been around for a long time, too, actually. Oh, yeah. He was a senior guy when he was in the 80s, wasn't he? Yeah. Wink, uh, you know, one of the last greats, yeah. Wow. So. I, uh, Adam, I can't thank you enough for doing this and 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 coming on here. We are going to come back, and we're going to do an entire episode just on the montage because it is 540 photos, and just going through them, I think, is going to be a lot of fun, and hopefully that is a precursor to having Barbara and, and, and Randy on. If not, it'll be a tribute to the work that they did uh, in that, in that, uh, amazing montage. Um, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be part of the Letterman podcast. You and I are missing the Super Bowl right now doing this. <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to bet happily just sure. <laughs> no problem. Um, yeah. thank you very, very, very much for taking time to be on the Letterman podcast, my friend. I really appreciate it. I wish you the best of luck with everything going on in your immediate future. And I hope a lot of very cool projects come your way um for you taking the time and and brain power to go as deep as you have uh into this amazing amazing genre of entertainment i hope that a lot of really cool projects come your way because of this guys like you and mark malkov and don giller guys who are out there that are just archiving this stuff and keeping the flame alive of this stuff i just want all you guys to to win at this i hope you Thank have you. some really really cool more really cool dream come true stuff happen for you adam you deserve it my friend Thank you so much. Awesome. Uh, I'll do a quick outro here, and then uh, we'll say our goodbye privately if that's okay with you. Sure. All right. Sounds good. Um, this is why we do the show, everybody. And and you know, it's funny. You know, you don't necessarily think about being able to fill an entire Letterman podcast uh, with 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 Letterman stuff. We we certainly could with all the stuff that we did with Dave. But just talking about this stuff, it's all connected. And I just adore the way that. Um, 
that these things weave their way in and out of uh, of this thing that we love, the, the greatest body of broadcast work in history, that of David Letterman and company. Now, we have one sponsor, one sponsor only on the Letterman podcast. That is hello-deli.com. Don't forget the dash. You'll go somewhere else entirely that we cannot speak to. Uh, but hello-deli.com. Rupert G. still selling uh, Late Show with David Letterman merchandise. License. The only place that you can buy licensed Late Show with David Letterman merchandise is from hello-deli.com. Head on over there. Send a friendly note to Rupert. This has been another episode of the Letterman Podcast with Mike Chisholm. Coincidentally, I am Mike Chisholm. Thank you and good night. Overcoat and underpants. <laughs>